And we're recording. Hey, everybody. How's it going today? What's up, man? I'm doing good. I slept in. I got about nine hours of sleep, I think. So I'm I'm pretty well rested. My my life, my whole sleep pattern is kind of goofy, but so during yeah, it must be nice. Nine hours. Well, during the week and the days I work, because I work in the mornings and I'm not a morning person, I usually get somewhere around like six hours of sleep. Mm. And uh, it's not actually turns out. I know some people claim they can operate on less than that, but it's not healthy for you. Um, yeah, and you feel it too. You really yeah. feel that. Yeah, in terms of like how I perform my job throughout the day and how I feel. So on those days off, I usually will sleep in. <laughs> I usually catch up on my sleep that I missed last night. So typically that results in like nine hours of solid passed out sleep. And mm. yeah, I usually feel pretty well rested after that yeah you know sleep and i we have a sort of a blood feud um one of the greatest assholes in the entire world uh vince mcmahon he said sleep is the enemy and i have to agree with him on that because can you imagine where we would be as a human species if we didn't have to sleep i mean we would have probably uh perfected time travel and enter uh, galactic colonization by now if we didn't have to sleep sleep pisses me off you know i'm in a blood feud with it that's a weird relationship to sleep i don't think oh, we yeah. should pattern our behaviors off a guy like vince mcmahon <laughs> <laughs> no not exactly uh, a role model i don't know. You know i was on my honeymoon in hawaii and uh i looked in the mirror and I noticed bags under my eyes and I noticed wrinkles. And I thought, you know what? I got to take this sleep shit more seriously. And so I've been trying to take it more seriously. I'm on a CPAP machine right now. Um, I try to ha go to bed at the same time every night, wake up at the same time every morning. Uh, but I, I hate sleep. I, I'm the type of person I have a lust for life. You know, life to me is something that I just got to ram right through because i love waking up every day and thinking what can i get done today and i hate it when you're in bed like god damn it fall asleep already already fall asleep so i can wake up and do more shit i gotta do more shit i hate it i wish you i could just press a button on my head or something boop, and then fall asleep and then just wake up eight hours later refreshed and off to doing whatever the hell I want to do. If only it were that easy, but... Hell yeah. Some people suffer with insomnia. Yeah. Poor bastards. See, I'm different where I like sleep because... not Because, I mean... Well, for me, you get to have really cool things called dreams, right? Oh, overrated. Dreams are interesting. They tell you a lot. If you remember them. If you remember them, which I don't remember most of my dreams unless they stand out. 
uh, I had a very interesting dream the other day where I was on the run by there was like a cop and he's like this and he looks like an investigator almost you know trench coat and everything and he's got an arrest warrant out for me and i talk him into giving me at least a couple tries to outrun him and he agrees and i'm like zooming i'm zooming through the streets through people's backyards i'm zooming through these alleyways i'm running and i'm I I feel like I could run for like miles at like high speed without falling asleep or, or I mean, uh, passing out or anything. And then like I'm hiding. And then like a few moments later, the guy just casually comes up and he looks at me and he's like, yeah, I caught you. And then he'll let me go and he lets me do it again. And I'm like, okay, he's not going to find me here. This motherfucker's not going to find me here. And again, a few moments, I could hear this beeping. And he's tracking me on like a tablet or a phone or something. And he keeps on finding me. And then, yeah, it's kind of where the dream ends at that point. (laughs) Well, I mean, your dream is an excellent example of how unfair we regular guys have against fucking powerful and the government. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot that can run, teleport. Yeah, there's a lot you, dreams can tell you about your psyche. Because most of my dreams... A lot of my dreams usually involve running away from the police for some reason. <laughs> Escaping the clutches of the law. Well, you don't have a uh, fond uh, view of the law. Of the police? No. Yeah. I'm kind of exploring that theme, though, in something that I'm writing right now. Uh, something I'm writing called The Terror of the Police. And um, it has to do when my father got arrested for, quote-unquote, drug trafficking. Uh, I put quotes around that because that's what it said it's in the arrest record. Um, he got arrested, and um, I was afraid that the police were going to raid the home we lived in at the time. And um, even that, when I had no interaction with the police, made me terrified of the police. Just because they can legally (laughs) raid your home and take you out of there. They have power, man. Yeah. I'm writing right now about the emotions I felt, the emotions my mother felt, and uh, the fact that my mom and I were innocent in that situation. But we could still face the wrath of the police. Terrifying shit, man. Terrifying. I can't imagine what it's like for people who actually had run-ins with the police. I fucking know. I mean... (laughs) Or people who are actually targeted or profiled by the Mm. police, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and... uh, I think of, like, the highest highest police in the entire uh, country, the FBI, and I think about, yeah, they do a lot of good things, like, you know, they bust uh, mafiosos, and they bust rapists and child predators, Um, but they also have a history of blatant racism, man. Oh, yeah. Going all the way back from the founding. I mean, the FBI were, like... (laughs) the foremost enemies of the civil rights movement. Yes. 
It didn't matter who you were in the civil rights movement. You could be a nonviolent activist like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the FBI still was targeting him. Yeah. Or you could be more militant like the Black Panther Party and the FBI still targeted them. Yeah. Like, do you know uh, who Fred Hampton was? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Chicago uh, Black Panther Party. That's killed by the police while he slept. Yeah. FBI identified Hampton as a radical threat, tried to subvert his activities in Chicago, sowing disinformation among black mm-hmm. pro- black progressive groups, placing a counterintelligence operative in the local Panthers. Uh, December 1969, and this is for the sake of the audience, Hampton was drugged, shot, and killed in his bed during a pre-dawn raid at his Chicago apartment by a tactical unit of the Cook County State Attorney's Office in conjunction with Chicago's police department and the FBI. So, yeah. I mean, I can definitely understand why Oh yeah, somebody would not be too keen or would fear the powers of the police and the FBI. I, going back even, too, to when the FBI was created in the 20s and you look at what they did to marcus garvey and the united negro improvement association and you look at what uh billy holiday what they did to billy holiday is they got a lot to apologize for hell this could be a <laughs> this alone yeah. could be a completely separate episode we're here Absolutely. we are planning to talk about jamestown and we've gotten into like man these cops that love killing people. Well, well, here's the thing about it, and here's how it relates. What's the role of the police, of the police, the police, whatever you want to call them? I mean, I would say to protect private property rights, to be honest. Yeah, well, I would say something. Laws. Okay. Yeah, I would say that. I would say to enforce the laws. And... They are enforcing the laws that were created by the government. And they're enforcing a system that's being maintained by that government. And that's what we talk about when we talk about the system. Mm -hmm. And so if we say that the FBI had racist beginnings and did some racist shit, well, they're only enforcing. They didn't create that system. And so that's how it kind of relates to American history and American values as well. Yeah, the protecting and reenacting of systems. Mm-hmm. And isn't that what critical race theory tries to talk about? <laughs> tries to address and analyze? Um, yes. Yeah. Um, and honestly, you really can't understand American history without talking about race. Yeah. Our our good pal from Morocco learned that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He uh, took uh, one class in American history and another class in American government. And he talked to me about how he wasn't exactly sure why our country is so focused on race and shit mm-hmm. and the history of race. But when he actually t- took a college level American history course, two of them, mm-hmm. it made it 
made perfect sense to him. He's like, oh, I see now. I see why. And it's not like, it's not ancient history. Like he kind of initially assumed it's some of this shit is very recent. Like, yeah, well, it, but it has roots in even he, before yeah. the United States of America was founded. Yeah. And that's something we're going to touch on today. We're going to touch some of those roots. Let's do a review first of what we talked about last time. Oh, yeah. Thank you for reminding me. So, about, oh, yeah. Oh, do you mean review of what we talked about last time or the review yeah, no, of the uh, book that you wanted to Oh, do? no. Last time we talked about. Uh, Jamestown and the Pursuit of Profit. And what we're going to do this time is we're going to end, um, we're going to finish that subject. But last time, what we talked about in our last episode um, was the founding of Jamestown. It's very um, scary, horrific origins, and it's reorganization using tobacco and how it became a success but it became a success for only a few the planters because we saw with the wealth that tobacco brought jamestown narcotics essentially (laughs) (laughs) so yeah this country narcotics so we saw that the wealth that tobacco brought jamestown the the harvesting and selling of tobacco uh, we saw that it also brought impoverished immigrants and indentured servitude, and it also brought kidnapped West Africans to be sold as slaves. So that's what we touched upon last episode. Pretty one of our best episodes so far in our in our short little history. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and today we're going to talk about. The English-Indian relations and the War of 1622. We're going to be, this is going to be our finale of Jamestown, everybody. So so for the the sake of the audience, can you tell everyone or remind everybody the book that we're referencing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, We're going to reference today a book entitled... The red, it's just titled Red, White, and Black. The early, sorry, the peoples of early North America. Red, White, and Black, the peoples of early North America by Gary B. Nash. And and we're reading from the sixth edition. Sounds good. Now, before we begin, do you want to have a, a little discussion about something that I saw? Yeah, I would love to. Since we're on the topics of books, you recommended a book that you still have. Is that right? Oh, yeah. The the seventh edition of a book called Global Problems in the the Culture of Capitalism. And this is kind of, what, technically an anthropology textbook or a social studies book? Yeah, I would say social studies. I mean, it deals with, in this book, um, <laughs> this book deals with a very uh, a wide assortment of topics. I mean, he taught, the authors, uh, Richard Robbins and Rachel uh, Doughty, if I'm saying her name right. Uh, but Ri- yes. 
Uh, yeah, but Richard Robbins and Rachel Doughty in this book, they talk about the reorganization of time according to uh, the Industrial Revolution. They talk about Disney, Disney World. They talk about, of course, capitalism and uh, history. They talk about a lot of things and how they're all related to each other. And you told me that this book was like a massive eye-opener for you. Was that right? I read this uh, in college for my sociology class, and um, I couldn't put it down. It really opened my eyes to a lot of uh, what's going on in the world today and how that was influenced by the past. A lot of shady shit that's going on in the world today. It also makes you think about different things. For example, for example, think about this, ladies and gentlemen. Um the Industrial Revolution comes, right? You're like, oh, man, that sounds boring. Nah, but wait a minute. The Industrial Revolution comes, right? And it changes how we work. It changes our whole conception of time, right? Today, we're so focused on time, time, time. Be here at this time. Be here at that time, etc., etc. But before you had the Industrial Revolution, which is changing of societies, um, and for those of you who don't know, the Industrial Revolution is when uh, the world, or different parts of the world, uh, changed from being mostly agricultural uh, work to now being driven by machines. So you have so with the Industrial Revolution, for example, you have factories, you have uh, mass assembly or mass production, rather. You have a different conception of time and work. And so with that brought how we look at time. Yeah. And also with that brought changes in diet, which is this book taught me. For example, um, a lot of the owners of these factories would give their workers sugar <laughs> so that their workers would be able to work longer hours and not fall asleep. Because we're talking about in the early stages of the Industrial Revolution, um, we're talking about people working 13 to 16 hour days in a factory doing monotonous work so we're talking about how diets change our conception of time change and that's just one chapter in that book the chapter about disney world for example mm -hmm. crazy the chapter about uh the cia and what they've done around the world crazy as well so this book's eye-opening damn you get me excited just talking about this book. I want to order copy of this shit, honestly. Here's the ironic thing, right? Yeah. No, it's just funny as hell to me. Um, the book's called Global Problems in the Culture of Capitalism. So it's a critique of capitalism. But I will say this. It doesn't... It doesn't... It's, it's not communist. It doesn't advocate for communism or socialism. It's just a critique of capitalism. But... Somebody disagrees with you. Huh? Somebody obviously disagrees with you in the review section. We'll get to that, jackass. But anyway, uh, the funny thing to me is how much this book costs. If you want to buy this book new in its 7th edition on Amazon, it's 63 bucks. I'm like, oh, come on, man. you got to be kidding me. It's you can buy it used for 60 bucks, but still. <laughs> At that point, why bother? <laughs> But, yeah, but but I think this is a textbook. That's why. And those te and yeah, it's a college level textbook. Okay. 
that's what that which makes sense but it's it's still bullshit it's required uh, reading though for anybody who's wondering you know why the hell is the world in the way it is today yeah but, but let's that, go down to this in the review yeah now we're not going to say the name of this fellow because you know <laughs> we're not gonna reveal his identity but yeah, he disagrees with you quite a bit whereas you speak very highly of this text uh <laughs> this guy he gives it one star and he calls it communist propaganda he's, or, a, he's a verified purchase too so that means he obviously bought the book he paid the money and i'm guessing this guy probably judging by his public profile and his past reviews and purchases he probably had to buy this book for a class because his purchase history or not his purchase history but his review history is like motorcycle backrest yeah. uh an anti-odor slipper uh some earrings crap like that so i'm guessing that's why he bought this book and his review starts out as the author starts the book by claiming that the pursuit of wealth is not a natural human behavior, which is absurd on its face. The author lays blame for all the world's problems on capitalism, but gives governments a pass. Their solution to the problem of capitalism is Karl Marx and his failed economic system of communism. Does the book give the reader an accurate history of communism? That's a hard no, comrade. <laughs> and but it's so weird because <laughs> as stupid as the content of his writing is, it's it it just strikes me because this last sentence he just kind of says, you know what, I'm not going to do pop proper punctuation or capitalization. I'm just gonna <laughs> wing it. And like everything else looks fine. Does the book give the reader an accurate history of communism? Comma. That's a hard no, comrade. So he thought he was being like super witty in this. Well, the reason why I, I brought you attention to this is because um, that first sentence that this guy has, um, the author, which states the author st starts the book by claiming that the pursuit of wealth is not a natural human behavior. Um, which is absurd on his face. So this guy thinks that the pursuit of wealth is a natural human behavior. And that got me thinking for about 30 minutes to an hour about, well, wait a minute. Is the pursuit of wealth, let's call it profit, because, hey, that's what we're talking about today. Is the pursuit of profit a natural human behavior? And and, and to me, in my opinion, I'll ask yours, uh my opinion is that the pursuit of profit or the pursuit of wealth is not a natural human behavior. So I disagree with this guy. I do not think that it is a natural human behavior um, or human desire. And the reason I say that is because I think about... I'm thinking more about hunter-gatherer societies before the agricultural revolution of, what, 10,000 years ago? Yeah. Um, which brought so with the agricultural revolution, it brought a surplus of 
um, agriculture, I guess, which you can say um, grain or whatever. Yeah, and so, food that you're growing and harvesting, you could store in surplus, which hunter-gatherer societies, being a contrast, generally didn't do that because they were usually on the move and usually were subsistence, you know? Uh, well, no, subsistence would be something else. Uh, they basically foraged, hunted, gathered enough to basically survive on. And for the most part, as unstable or as unpredictable as that situation could be, they actually worked way less than the oh. people in the agricultural societies and arguably even less than we do now. Well, and they also have more equal societies because here's, when you have a surplus, the prop, so it's good to have a surplus, but one of the problems with a surplus, whether it be of grain or say like money, for example, anytime you have a surplus, somebody's going to have more than someone else. Mm-hmm. And that, in my opinion, is what creates this pursuit of wealth or pursuit of profit. And you see that, too, in these agricultural societies of way, 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 way back when they have it created, it solidified class systems, social classes, where those who were on top had more of the surplus or who controlled more of the surplus. Right. And so class systems seem to bring about this pursuit of wealth or this pursuit of profit. I agree. And I think it helps to keep in mind that surplus in of itself isn't necessarily the only thing at play here. We also have to consider scarcity. That's Mm, what gives power to those who have surplus. So in agricultural societies, that would be food, right? Mm -hmm. Number one thing. Uh, It could be grains, it could be millet, it could be whatever it is. And the ones who had surplus uh, in relation to the ones who had less of it or none at all could distribute it. They could be kind of like, you know, the big, the big man, right? The distributor. Strong man, yeah. Strong man, that's it, yeah. Oh, yeah. And because that they have the power to distribute food and other stuff then they can use that position as leverage over other people. And that's when we start to see in the agricultural revolution, uh, these individuals who, or these families or whatever, who have property, they develop the surplus. And this doesn't even cover how they manage to get their hands on that, by the way. Yeah. Um, because that's, this, pretty, that's a good one you mentioned too. Because the way I'm describing and wording it kind of makes it sound like everybody just human beings just start on a level playing field. Oh. And that's not necessarily the case. Mm-hmm. <laughs> human societies generally don't start on level playing fields unless. Well, uh, well you could argue that hunter gatherer societies more so started on that kind of playing level playing field. Not entirely. There's never been a completely equal society, is what I'm mm-hmm. saying. But even in the agricultural revolution, 
inequality starts to emerge when groups of people tend to have not necessarily monopolies over the production of resource, but they they basically have control. Small group of people <laughs> having control over a resource uh, that the majority of the people that pretty much everyone else relies on to survive. That and like I said, we haven't covered how they got a hold of that in the first place. You know, uh, it could be through violence, it could be through inheritance. There was lots of ways um, <laughs> in prehistory, but yeah we start to see social inequality emerge largely from the agricultural revolution and onwards. Yeah. And, uh, one thing too, you might be saying, well, all right, have everybody out there think about the society we live in today. And I was talking with this with our mutual friend at, uh, Mr. Uh, Oh man, that guy, <laughs> <laughs> You know what I'm talking about. Fuck you. Fuck Jesus, you. yeah. Academus came in with his dick in his hand. If you don't know what we're talking about, it's in the last episode. <laughs> anyway, think about the society you live in. And then fr from the time, at least here in the United States of America, from the time that we are babies in the crib, from the time we're sucking our mother's breasts, you understand? We are inundated, inundated, flooded with consumerism. Buy this, buy that, buy, 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 consume, 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 because our economy is based on consumption, consumption, consumption for shit we don't even need. Yeah, usually like commodities or. Yeah. Well, there are commodities, there are things that are commod <laughs> that are commodified that you actually need, like food, yeah. uh, health care, shelter, things like that. And then there's commodities that you don't necessarily need, but are kind of nice to have, you know, like, uh, oh gosh, uh, you, you don't need a cell phone to, to survive, but you practically do need one now to, to, to thrive and <laughs> yeah, to function in society. Um, but other shit could be like jewelry, clothes, cars shit like that yeah and uh my whole point is that this pursuit of wealth this pursuit of profit is being propagated by uh consumerism in our society currently so yeah because it, it that's what my whole point there is uh about that on it. yeah yeah and there's nothing wrong with having money there's nothing wrong with advertisements um it's just I just think everybody, we all collectively, you and I, he and she, everybody just needs to step back and say, whoa, relax, relax, man, relax. Do we really need this? Do we really need that? Am I putting the pursuit of profit over the well-being of myself, of my brother and my sister? So that's basically all I really want to go with that. Yeah, I would say that there isn't anything wrong with having nice stuff either. I mean, no. Natalie Wynn, a.k.a. ContraPoints, actually makes a really good point because she describes herself uh, jokingly in one of her videos as a champagne socialist. So most people tend to think of that as like, like somebody that's very bourgeois, you know, 
they actually it's not like real socialism Ooh, it's just yeah. like a small crust of people get most of the shit or whatever but no she used it to more like yeah i love champagne let's figure out a way so everyone can have the champagne too you know what i mean oh yeah mm-hmm. give everybody a taste well that, that's why when i'm at work at my at my retail job so I have two jobs, uh, teacher and retail worker. But that's why at my retail job, I always buy candy for uh, my coworkers. Uh, and the reason I do that is because if we all share the candy, nobody gets fat. We don't have to worry about losing weight. We don't have to worry about somebody having more than the other. So, and I, and I take a, that on the approach of money as well. I mean, if we all share, nobody's rich. Right, everybody nobody, gets the benefit. Nobody has to live in poverty. Nobody has to like yeah, yeah. struggle. No one has to live in squalor. Things like that. more like, power than anybody else in respect to the power that money can bring. They may have power in other ways, but not in terms of well, I'm wealthy, so I'm going to buy this political candidate, or hey, I'm going to go through this corporation and try to influence and lobby a law to a congressman or woman. So that's the kind of stuff that we need to think about when we talk about why is one person or a few people having so much wealth a bad thing. It's not that we hate wealth or money. It's the fact that these people have too much influence and power over our democracy. If you can even call it a democracy at this point. I think that's a perfect segue into our discussion of Jamestown. Because we're going to see a historical example of what that kind of society looks like. What, is soci- what does a society look like when it is just a few who have plenty and everyone else is subject to squalor? What does that mm-hmm. look like in a setting that is supposedly democratic but is dominated by powerful wealthy interests? So yeah, I, and um, yeah, and to recap last week, uh, they talked about Jamestown. Uh, one English critic during the time period um, gave uh, James gave Virginia the name of a slaughterhouse house because the planters, the the tobacco planters, were so powerful. The very small, the minority of tobacco planters were so powerful, and so yeah. As you said, that's what we're going to continue here today. And we're going to talk about the English-Indian relations, which is going to focus, too, on this pursuit of profit. Yeah. And that largely ties in to begin with something we talked about the last episode. Uh, Do you recall the Virginia Company's plans for the indigenous people there already? Absolutely. Uh, The plan for the indigenous people's was to make them, in effect, slaves, to work them. Precisely. So Mm -hmm. the original plan was to subjugate the indigenous population and force them into literal slavery. So Mm -hmm. the English at this time were looking at the example of what the Spanish and Portuguese did to the native people in Mexico in Peru, in Brazil. And those 
in those situations, um, it was largely. Ooh, oh, we're going to cover it later in this episode, but they essentially subjugated the native population there. They established like permanent colonies, uh, made efforts to convert the population in order to force them to assimilate to the colonizer culture and essentially derive wealth from these colonies, namely silver and gold. And this is what the English wanted to do. But as we're going to see, it doesn't quite work out that way. And it goes on a different route altogether. So do you want to begin? Yeah. And so... um this is going to be the final Jamestown episode. And remember, uh, last episode, I came at you with a thesis, an argument. Uh, the argument being the United States of America was founded on a value because we're looking at American values in this podcast. American value of the pursuit of profit and that's what we see in the founding of jamestown and it's also important to note that um jamestown was founded before the united states was founded you're like what 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 so the united states was founded in 1776 as we all know jamestown was founded in 1607 1608 ish and you're like all right then why dude why are you talking about why are you talking about um this being a value if the United States of America wasn't even founded because this value of pursuit of profit is going to be a value that we're going to see throughout American history and this is the genesis the beginning of it all right yeah so that's our argument here that's our thesis we we are going to be in our book today the red white and black the peoples of early North America the sixth edition by Gary B Nash excellent book and we are going to be in chapter three and we're going to start from page 52 with the section english indian relations so that's where we're at if you want to follow along all right do you want me to start reading uh yeah all right english indian relations historians do not know exactly what the english expected of the algonquin occupiers of the land as they approached Chesapeake Bay in the spring of 1607. Nor is it possible to be certain whether the Indian destruction of a Spanish Jesuit mission on the York River in 1571 bespoke a generalized hostility towards Europeans. But it is likely given that the English belief that the Roanoke colony had been reduced to a pile of bones by the Indians a generation earlier and given the Indians' sporadic experience with Europeans as a militaristic people, that neither side was very optimistic about encountering each other. So there's already some kind of pre-existing tensions here, uh, and uh, especially with the mentioning of the Roanoke colony. Now, do you want to remind the folks at home what the Roanoke colony was? Uh, The Roanoke Colony was a very, it's actually a very mysterious, unsolved mystery of American history. And this is pre-America, but still a colonial American history, I guess you could say. Um, Roanoke, the Roanoke Colony, um, 
they landed uh, Roanoke, Virginia, and in this fort, nobody's sure of what happened to them. They just disappeared. <laughs> it was like they just disappeared. Um, <laughs> it's like, what happened? And uh, it, it, it's an unsolved mystery of American history. Yeah. Did they go with the Indians? Did they all die? Like, where did they go? Like, we don't see any bones here in this fort. We don't see any bodies. Where did they go? It's almost spooky. It's like a ghost fort. Ghost town. Yes. So there's there's a lot of tensions and uncertainty between the European colonizers and the indigenous population here. Um, moving on. English pessimism must have intensified when Indians attacked the Jamestown expedition near Cape Henry, the most seaward port of the land in the Chesapeake Bay region, where the first landfall was made. From this event on, the English proceeded with extreme caution, expecting violence and treachery from the Indians, even when they approached in outwardly friendly ways. When the one-armed Captain Newport led the first exploratory trip, up the newly named James River, just weeks after a tiny settlement had been planted at Jamestown, he was confused by the friendly greeting. The Indians, a member of his group wrote, are naturally given to treachery. Howbeit, we could not find it in our trip well up the river, but rather a most kind and loving people. This account describes how the, Algu the Algonquins wined and dined Oh, wait. You want to carry on? Because I don't have the other page. <laughs> Pulled okay. up. It's 53. Yeah. Alright. So, they mentioned the Algonquins here. So, this next section is going to talk about um, what do we know of the Indians, the native, the indigenous people who were living in this region at the time. So, here's going to go. We now know that the Indians of the region, some 30,000, so 30,000, uh, indigenous people, Indians, were accurately describing their situation when they said that they were at odds with other tribes. Some 40 small tribes lived in the Chesapeake Bay region of Virginia. Uh, Wahun Sunakak, so this Indian chief known as Wahun Sunakak, known to the English as Powhatan, was the paramount chief of about 30 of these Indian tribes. And in fact, he had forged the most centralized Algonquin uh, polity or government in the southeastern region. For years before the English had even arrived, he had been consolidating his hold on the lesser tribes of the area, while also keeping off inland tribes of the Piedmont. In this situation, Powhatan probably saw an alliance with the English as a means of extending his power in the Tidewater area while simultaneously neutralizing the power of his western enemies. At so. the same time, his unpleasant experience with the Europeans, including a clash just three years before... Uh, well, hold on. We'll hold off on that point. But it's important to note that there were some 30,000 Indians in this Chesapeake Bay area and 40 small tribes of Indians. And this guy known as Powhatan uh, to the English, Powhatan uh, created the Algonquins, which was like a, would you say, cornbread a confederacy? 
yeah, of I, Indian tribes? Yeah, that would describe it pretty well, because a mm. confederacy is generally a government or polity where the individual member states tend to have like a lot of power and autonomy, and they are united by a generally a weak central authority. So Powhatan, in this instance, is that central authority, and he's kind of at odds with these other tribes because he is interested in extending his power over them, his particular tribe's power anyway. Whereas these other tribes are typically kind of use, loosely united, yeah, I think I would say. They're, they're united, really, yep. Yeah, they're not really strongly knit uh as we might think and there are other indians outside of this confederacy who they have hostile relations with you know like the piedmont peoples Mm -hmm. so this is going to be a very running theme as we go forward keep in mind that this is not just like a black versus white or a black or white thing it's or a, red versus white. <laughs> yeah, red versus white or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not like a binary relationship. It's a very complicated network of relationships that these English colonizers are stumbling upon and really don't know a whole lot about. They have oh, yeah. and they generally have these pretty racist assumptions about them already. Oh yeah, in the in the English, they see all Indians as the same. It's like they all look alike to me. <laughs> yeah, but no, we have like a diverse set of tribes and cultures yeah. here, and they have complicated relationships with each other. And the English are going to become part of a very complicated network for the time being. And here's a here's an interesting story too from Powhatan's perspective. Um, that that made Powhatan say, "All right, I'm a little wary of these people, but I'm gonna try to get an alliance with these people." So check this story out. At the same time, Powhatan's unpleasant experience with Europeans, including a class a clash just three years before with the passing English ship, whose crew had been hospitally entertained but then had killed a local chief and kidnapped several Indians, no doubt made Powhatan wary of these newcomers. So Powhatan um, personally uh, experienced um, a a passing English ship uh, three years before this. This passing English ship, the crew was hospitally entertained by one of a... uh, these local tribes, not pa- not Powhatan's tribe, but one of these local Indian tribes, and their chief was killed by the, this passing in- the people on this passing English ship, and this and the English also kidnapped several Indians. So Powhatan's like, oh, hold on, man, these people, they're dangerous. So from the Powhatan viewpoint, the newcomers were potentially useful, but also dangerous. Right. So he's kind of seeing them in a dual way. And so among, so among them, now at the same time, among the smaller tribes that Powhatan had dominated, many of those leaders of those tribes, they are seeing an alliance with the English as a way to get out of Powhatan's clutches. 
So what we have here is some uh, some very political, very maneuvering. Um, would you say Game of Thrones stuff or Romance of the Three Kingdoms type stuff? I would say Romance of the Three Kingdoms stuff, just because we're not hearing a whole lot about rape and sexual assault here. Yeah, um, I, I've seen Game of Thrones, nor do I want to, because... What I just yeah, described. Um, because I, I H, here's the thing. HBO shows are like the greatest shows ever. You can't beat The Wires, you can't beat The Sopranos. But the problem is, man, they just throw gratuity nudity gratuitous gratuitous nudity and sex in those shows and it turns me off man i'm like nah i want to see this shit like for example i'll I'll give a great example i was trying to watch uh lovecraft country right i'm like oh you know what this show lovecraft country you know Mm -hmm. it's a um primarily black cast and it's about racism and science fiction mingled in together i'm like that sounds awesome as hell but you know what i'm like i'm gonna watch this all right so I'm like, all right, it's on right now. Let's see what this is about. I turn the channel on to HBO. And the first thing I see is the character of Michael Kenneth Williams. And he is being, he's either taking it up the ass or he's, or he's getting it up the ass. And I'm like, oh, hell nah, man. Turn off. I'm like, that's some bullshit, man. He's first thing I living see. living his best life. Fuck, dude, what is the point? Yeah. Like, like HBO shows are fucking awesome. Rome, Sopranos, The Wire, but what, what, what's the point of that sex and, sex and nudity in them? Because that shit sells. And I know you're not coming at it from, like, a homophobic kind of thing. No, I don't care. I don't care what two people, two, two consenting adults do. I don't care. Yeah, like, for you, it's I just more of the sex. Whether it be straight or gay, I don't want to see it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Martin is, see. when oh, it comes to God. television, Martin is, sex is bad. What? But, it just pisses me off, man. <laughs> yeah, going back. So, to the audience members who don't know what we're exactly what we're referencing when we say Three Kingdoms, you could say that Game of Thrones is kind of like a modern Western version of that story it's a it's a romance not in the whole you know like you know like romantic lover story oh yeah it's a romance in terms of like chivalry and warriors and stuff like that um it just it's basically takes place uh after about like the late han dynasty in china and after that dynasty's collapse uh the China enters a period of chaos and it's considered one of the most violent periods in Chinese history. And it tells the, it follows the stories of these, I guess you could say they're technically warlords, um, warlords, but there's like a lot of heroic feats and stories and political maneuvering. Yeah. Yeah. Political maneuvering and court injury. So when we reference that, that's what we're talking about. Yeah. There's a lot of, political maneuvering in the Chesapeake Bay region at this time between Powhatan, the tribes that he subjugates, and the English. That's a good way to describe it, yeah. Yeah. Do you want to continue reading? I will be right back. Sure, yeah. All right, so 
Remember we talked about John Smith last time? The dude that I talked about getting down in the dirty in the fields with, which Cornbread saw as dirty, but I was just saying, man, it'd be cool to work with this guy and hear him tell me stories. But anyway, <laughs> um, so John Smith, uh, we talked about him last uh, episode. He's, he's initially leading this Jamestown colony. He's part of the governing council. But anyway, perhaps because their position was so precarious, the English... Uh, position was so precarious with dysentery, hunger, drought, and internal strife uh, debilitating their tiny settlement, the English could afford only to regard all Indians as threatening. Hence, hostile and friendly Indians were seen as different only in their outward behavior. Inwardly, they were identical, quote-unquote, savage, treacherous people who wanted who waited only for a chance to drive the English back into the sea from which they had come. So what this is reminding me of is, remember how I said the English, you know, they're seeing all Indians alike. They all look like to me, but it's not only physical appearance, but the English are also seeing them as savage and treacherous, not to be trusted. And what this is reminding me of is bias. You know, uh, the, bias, the biases that we all have, right? Well, the English settlement, settler's bias is against these Indians in a way that's seeing them as savage, potentially treacherous, right? And it really made me think of, uh, and I was talking to Cornbread about this, the, the way that the English saw the Indians really reminded me of how a lot of black men have been portrayed in the media of American history. Oh, yeah? Yeah, because, you're right, the English are seeing these Indians, you know, they all look alike to me, you know, they're all savage, they're all treacherous, they're all evil, and that's the way I think a lot of the media, especially in the history of the United States of America, has portrayed black men. Yeah, as dangerous, aggressive, mm -hmm. violent... Yeah, need yeah. to be locked up, yeah. especially after, especially after the Civil War, right? When uh, slavery was criminalized, at least for those who weren't convicted of a crime. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, so I, I see a lot of parallels here to the Indian experience, also to the Black experience in American history. Yeah, there is a very long-studied relationship between the treatment and conditions that African Americans lived in in the United States and the conditions and treatment of Native Americans. And, you know, what both of those groups face today. Yeah, and, uh, you know, people out there may want to get into quote-unquote oppression olympics but it ain't about that it's about saying hey we see similarities here and we're seeing patterns we're seeing the same sort of patterns of discrimination and that's what we can see yeah so have uh, you heard the term uh bipoc before um black indigenous people of color yeah 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 that's essentially what that movement is primarily interested in. I mean, it's developing an analysis. Um, it's 
I mean, ultimately they want to uplift both groups, but they're interested in an analyzing the relationship that both groups have to like the dominant culture or dominant system of racism in the United States have, yeah. you know. Well, that's why uh, that's why we all need to unite because, I mean, a, a conqueror, their goal, or I would say, I guess, people in power, no matter no matter what race, creed, what color, whatever. But you look around the world, people in power historically, one of the things that they do and can do and did is divide and conquer. If you divide a people, you can conquer them. For example. Let's take a look in our own history here. Let's take a look at uh, poor whites in the South and slaves in the South before the uh, before the ending of after after slavery. Let's look at um, poor whites and uh, those who were formerly formerly enslaved. Right. The Southern governments had a strategy of dividing poor whites and poor blacks and pitting them against each other so that the poor whites and poor blacks wouldn't unite and become the majority and take over those who are in power. Yeah. So we all, so that is something that we also see. Yeah, and it was wealthy whites who were doing that. Yeah, wealthy landowning whites, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And not just landowning whites, but also like white industrialists too in northern states where they capitalized on existing racial tension to make sure that workforces and the working class as a whole were, you know, divided. Mm -hmm. And they used that to partly break up unions besides using direct force, you know, like Pinkertons and state militias and shit like that. Um, But that's something that they exploited. And you could argue that they still probably exploit today. Even look today in terms of the similarities between. Let's take a look at the similarities between those who stormed the Capitol on January 6th of this year and those of us who who are tired of the power elite structure in this country. We're similar, but yet we're being divided on these bullshit culture war issues. Let's put all the culture war stuff to the side here and let's talk about let's talk about how we can unite and take those who are dividing us from the top even today. I mean, wake up people, wake up. Get out of your soma and do comas and You're cutting up. you're cutting in. We're being divided by the bullshit culture issues. Oh, yeah, oh, I, mean, I am. Oh. There is a Wait, lot of, just now. You're good now. There is a lot of bullshit okay. culture issues. I agree. I think the things that divide us, though, besides, you know, things that are meant to deliberately distract us are mm-hmm. yeah. ultimate goals, because even though, yeah, there you could spend all day exploring all the commonalities between you and myself and somebody at f- who went to the fucking riot and stormed the Capitol on January 6th. But 
you and I have completely different visions and goals besides the things that you might say distract us. Like, mm. a lot of those fucking people went there to overturn the fucking election results. Let's be real. Let's fucking be honest. Yeah. And look at the people who were there. Like, you had fucking Proud Boys. You had fucking, like, militant groups there. You had fucking white nationalists there. You had, like, QAnon cultist types there. <laughs> you had all kinds of different mm. fucking people there. And they were united by a, generally a single goal. They wanted to overturn the fucking election. They wanted to disrupt our already shitty, broken democracy. Whereas you and I want a society that is equitable, where we all have agency and freedom and the power to kind of like make our own destiny and not be so const like constrained by these unjust forces like social class, mm -hmm. economic class, racial class, yeah. shit like that. Yeah, but but even of those capital rioters, I mean, how many were wealthy? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's all you had to have. Girl, they got shot. If you have money for weapons and shit, and to get your, assuming mm. that you're not like a local resident or whatever. If you have money to get your ass over there and you have a bunch of weapons or whatever, mm -hmm. I would question uh, money in that instance. But mm. but going back to what we were actually discussing, yeah. we're already at the first hour mark. Oh, my goodness. Oh, wow. Oh. Yeah, we got distracted. Well, I, well, I'm just trying to relate more current events to. Yeah, there's a lot relatable. Oh, when yeah. You look at Jamestown or anything in American history. Yeah, um, absolutely. But yeah, where did we exactly leave off at? All right, so we're talking about the English mindset toward the Indians, right? Mm -hmm. um, now, what we're getting into is the beginning relationship of the Indians and these early Jamestown settlers here. So I'll start off here on what? page 53. 53? All right. Yeah. So at the very last paragraph. So in the autumn of 1607, during the quote-unquote starving time, when food supplies were running perilously low and all but a handful of the Jamestown settlers had fallen too ill to work, the colony was saved by Powhatan. His men brought food to keep the struggling settlement alive until the sick recovered and the relief ship arrived. Many saw this gesture as an example of Powhatan's covert hostility rather than as an attempt of the chief to serve his own interest through an alliance with the English. And look at this primary source quote here from uh, John Smith himself. Mm -hmm. It pleased God in our extremity, wrote John Smith, to move the Indians to bring us corn before it was half ripe to refresh us when we rather expected they would destroy us. <laughs> Even when they are saving your life, yeah. these fucking mm -hmm. people cannot see they, 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 it's not even their imagination that these people have good intent or there's some yeah. at least other motivation even if it's self-serving yeah yeah so, yes. which for powhatan you could argue probably was self-serving but mm -hmm. as a whole this is a pretty this is a sign of goodwill to some extent right yeah he could have just said f you and i'm not giving y'all any food it can be 
but it can be both self-serving and good intentioned at the same time. <laughs> but in this guy's mind, no, God Almighty is the one possessing this group of people these natives to help them out in this time of need to give them corn god is literally possessing them overriding their free will and making them save (laughs) their sick starving white asses but so uh and and that in that's a common theme too, not only with John Smith, but there's another primary source here where it talked about, um, quote unquote, if it had not pleased God to have put a terror in the savage's heart, we all had per- we all would have perished by those wild and cruel pagans being in the weakest state as we were. So, <laughs> yeah. So it's not just John Smith. This is like a pretty common idea in the mind of these colonizers that God almighty is working miracles to move these people who, in the words of this guy are cruel and savage pagans. Even though the Virginia company sent these people over with the eventual long-term plans of fucking enslaving them. (laughs) Yes. Um, (laughs) And uh, going on to this next page, page 54, there's a pretty cool map here um, that shows the early Chesapeake Bay region. And it gives a it's 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 a map that shows how large uh, Powhatan's Confederacy uh, or how how large his his loose affiliation of tribes was. And it's a very substantial region. And it also shows something called Powhatan's Crescent, where his power was mostly concentrated. And it's pretty cool because Powhatan's Crescent, this area where his power was mostly concentrated, it looks like a, it kind of looks like a Pac Man. <laughs> it, and- it looks like a horseshoe or like. Yeah. yeah. I want to say horseshoe, but my brain looks at the dotted line and it looks kind of like a pincer from a crab. Oh, oh, yeah, I can see that too. Yeah, oh, pincer is probably a better explanation. And what's and what's at the end of this claw? You know, the part that crushes down. Well, it's hard for me to see because it's kind of blurred. So you'll have to (laughs) explain. Jamestown, the the settlement of Jamestown, is at the end of this uh, crescent. If you if you think of it as a mouth, it's the part where the teeth are. Where it bites down. And so what we see here is that these settlers, um, they are really at the mercy of Powhatan. Because that crescent, that mouth, that Pac-Man is... All it has to do is, boom, uh, bite down and it's over. You know, I'm using metaphorical terms, but... (laughs) Yeah, they could come in from either side of the river that flows into Chesapeake Bay because there's a north and south that surround Jamestown that I can see. Oh, the York River and the James River? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And if they were ever so inclined, they could have just completely exterminated Yes. and called it a day. Yeah. But no, they didn't do that. They end up saving them. Even, like I said, if it's for maybe self-serving reasons. But yeah. 
And uh, we got a pretty cool story here in December uh, yeah. 1607. You want to take that one? Absolutely. Yeah. In December 1607, Smith was captured during one of his exploratory uh, incursions into Powhatan's country and marched to, oh God, Werowokomo. Werowokomo. I'm going to say it one more time. <laughs> he marched to Werowokomo the seat of Powhatan's confederacy. Powhatan seemed to have wanted to employ this opportunity to impress the English with his power and arranged a mock execution ceremony for Smith. <laughs> now, for all of you who watched that Pocahontas movie, <laughs> which is actually a bad movie in my opinion, uh, but more importantly, uh, you remember that scene, you know, where they're going to like, off John Smith, you know, I mean, that whole scene? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you could say that it was inspired from this historical event, this mock execution. So he arranges the mock execution as a show of power. Um, so he's got Smith and he's prepared to quote unquote kill his ass. Um, but at the critical <laughs> moment, as the executioners prepared to deliver the death blows, the chief's favorite daughter, Pocahontas, threw herself on Smith to save him. About 12 years old, Pocahontas had been a frequent visitor to Jamestown, undoubtedly as a emissary of her father, and was well known to Smith. But rather than understanding the... What does that say? Rescue. Understanding the rescue in symbolic terms as Powhatan's way of indicating his strength, but also his desire to... to forge a bond yeah. with the newcomers. To forge a bond with the newcomers. Smith and other Virginians took Pocahontas's gesture as a spontaneous outburst of love for the English as an un-Indian-like attribute to... Oh. Attributable. Oh wait, as an un-Indian-like act, attributable to English superiority, or perhaps to God's intervening hand. There's that. There's that whole theme again, cropping up. That bias. This white colonizer imagination here. That God is once again just zooping into the situation to save their asses. Yeah. Ho hostility was on the English mind. Sporadic hostility already occurred, and Powhatan's deliverance of the English leader at a time when the colony was almost defenseless was thus not conceived as a conciliatory act. Yeah, but I mean, in fairness, though, if I were John Smith, my butthole would be clenched because I would be terrified. Yeah, and maybe that was partly also to do that, too. Probably wanted him to walk away with the impression that Powhatan and the boys can smite you whenever they feel yeah. like. Like a fly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's, man. It's as <laughs> much as a show of power as it is a show of reconciliation to the English. It's meant to be both. But the English don't pick up on that. They have this image that they are fundamentally immutably hostile towards their existence 
Yeah, like they're possessed by demons or something, you know? The cruel pagans. <laughs> In the aftermath of the incident, Pocahontas became a kind of ambassador from Powhatan to the struggling Jamestown colony, an agent who became fluent in the English language and kept her father informed on the state of the internally divided English. By late 1608, more colonists arrived in Jamestown, and Smith, as the new president of council, adopted an aggressive stance, burning Indian canoes, fields, and villages in order to extort desperately mm. needed Indian maize and to cow Powhatan and his lesser chiefs into submission. So, John Smith is feeling oh, pretty man. ballsy here. Yeah. Um, didn't, quite, didn't quite learn the lesson there. Uh, oh, yeah. The whole mock execution stuff. So, it's sort of like, two episodes ago, we were confounded, right? We were, we were, we didn't understand what caused this beef between the Indians and the English. Well, right here... John Smith, whom I loved before I read this part, he is now adopting a more aggressive stance because these new colonists are coming. More and more colonists are coming. And now John Smith's like, oh, man, now I need to start stealing and extorting for your corn. Yeah. And <sighs> I'm not, I don't want to take John Smith's side here. Because he's the fucking colonizer. I can understand his position a little bit. Mm -hmm. Because for him, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of options other than trade. Which, mm -hmm. I'm assuming trade alone is not bringing enough resources to sustain the colony. So, he's using violence and force to coerce it out of Powhatan. Which, like I said, I'm not taking his fucking side here on this because, again, he's the fucking colonizer. Nobody asked his ass to show up here. None yeah. of these people showed up here. As far as the natives are concerned, these people are fucking invaders. And now they're fucking pillaging uh, and yeah. burning shit to coerce them for food and supplies. Yeah, it's like, I could have killed you, man, but look what you're doing now. Oh. Yeah. Maybe Powhatan is probably regretting not, you know, actually executing John Smith at this point. So, yeah, g moving on. Aware that Virginia could not be resupplied from England every few months. Wait, did I read that right? Yeah. Okay. Aware that Virginia could not be resupplied from England every few months and that the colonists were unable to sustain themselves in their new environment, Smith sought a forced trade with Powhatan. But by now, Powhatan determined to let the English starve, a policy made manifestly clear not only by his refusal to trade corn, but also by his withdrawal of Pocahontas. On penalty of death, Powhatan forbade his young daughter to enter the English settlement. Mm. And we're going to see why that was probably wise on his part uh, coming up. So you want oh, to yeah. continue? Yeah. And so Powhatan is warning John Smith. Powhatan says to John Smith, he says, 
at a at a meeting in January 1609, Powhatan says, Captain Smith, some doubt I have of your coming here. That makes me not so kindly seek you as I would like. For many do inform me that your coming is not for trade, but to invade my people and possess my country. He ain't so wrong. Powhatan knows what's up. He he knows. He's not stupid. He's, yeah, he's not an idiot. Yeah, he's got. He had an agent on the inside too. Remember, I mean, that's what mm-hmm. Pocahontas was doing. She wasn't just the emissary. She was the eyes and ears. And so, coming up, y'all, in this next paragraph, we just want to say, we got a cannibalism warning warning coming up. <laughs> yeah. So. Trigger, trigger warning here for uh, some cannibalism, some uh, not so great stuff. Um, but it's going to really show you the state of desperation and affairs in the colony. Oh, yeah. So moving on, leading a colony where some men were deserting to the Indians while others starved. Hell, I would have went to the Indians. Smith raided Indian villages for provisions and slaughtered native people of both sexes in all ages. This is starting to sound like that G word, which we'll come into later. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. So, colonists began to occupy Indian land in the James River Valley. Powhatan retaliated by attacking the English wherever he could. Even the arrival of fresh supplies and several hundred new colonists in the summer of 1609 did not help because the provisions or supplies were quickly exhausted. The colonists ravenously consuming more than they produced. Dumbasses. When the relief ships, those same ships that came in 1609, when those ships departed Jamestown in October 1609, John Smith was aboard one of them. <laughs> so John Smith says, I'm out of here. <laughs> He's going to live with his auntie and uncle in Bel Air. He's smart too. He said, I'm out. So after those relief ships with, with John Smith departed in October 1609, Virginia embarked upon a winter of despair. Under the surveillance of Powhatan, who ambushed foraging colonists wherever he could, the death toll mounted. George Percy, uh, John Smith's successor, wrote that after the horses had been eaten, the dysentery-wracked Virginians, and dysentery makes you have diarrhea, so these diarrhea-wracked Virginians (laughs) uh, were glad to make shift with such vermin as dogs, cats, rats, and mice. When these were exhausted, men resorted to things which seem incredible as to dig up corpses out of graves and to eat them, and some have licked up the blood with which has fallen from their weaker fellows. And among the rest, and this was most lamentable or sad, that one of our colony murdered his wife, ripped the child out of her womb, and threw it into the river, and chopped the mother in pieces, and salted her for his food, the same not being discovered before he had eaten part thereof. And that's a, that's a primary source, by the way. This is not a secondary source. 
This is primary. This is, this is yeah, from George Percy, the, the Smith's successor. So the leader. Yeah, he's writing about things that are happening as he is becoming the new leader of the colony. That makes it, yeah, that makes his colony look bad. Yeah, this is not good marketing, folks. <laughs> If you want people to come to Jamestown, you don't write about dudes murdering their wives and cutting out their unborn. Oh, my gosh. It's just... Oh, my God. So, man, to summarize all that up, it's John Smith and the more aggressive colonists were the ones who started this beef so far. And Powhatan saying, okay... We can get it on. And as a result, the colonists are so desperate, they're eating each other. Yeah. And here are the indigenous people who've lived here for like ever. Just kind of like chilling. I mean, they're engaging in some skirmishes here and there, you know, ambushing foraging colonists. But they're doing pretty fine, just like they always have. Oh. And this, yes. and this policy of Powhatan's ultimately works temporarily. Oh, yeah. Because as when the trade stops uh, around come, let me see, what, spring 1610? Uh, this is from the writing of a Spanish ambassador to England, a guy named Alonso de Velasco. Alonso de Velasco. Uh, let's see here. Oh, yeah, page 56. Yeah, that is once again sideways. <laughs> oh, see, man. He, he's that. actually got the book. <laughs> I don't have the book. I have, yeah. like, pages that he sent me, and some of them, unfortunately, came, like, sideways. So, well, yeah, my phone is broken, so it can't take pictures the normal way. So I, ha- so I had to take these pictures in selfie mode. Uh, cause that's the only way my phone would have been able to take pictures. Okay. And, uh, some of these pictures, yeah, are sideways. All right. I have, I have it now. Okay. So, so this dude, uh, the Spanish ambassador to England in the spring of 1610, Alonso de Velasco. Yeah. He, re- what's he saying? He reported home saying that, quote, the Indians hold the English surrounded in the strong place, which they erected there having killed the larger part of them. And the others were left so entirely without provisions that they thought it impossible to escape. Virginia could be easily erased from the map, Velasco counseled his government, by sending out a few ships to finish off what might be <laughs> left in that place. So the, so the Spanish are wanting to kick the English up. <laughs> the Spanish Ooh. are seeing an opportunity and like, yay. Maybe we can do the enslaving. Think about this, though. This is crazy because what if the Spanish would have done this? We would probably be speaking Spanish right now, dude. That'd be okay. I like speaking Spanish. Uh, I I do, too. I mean, colonization, (laughs) no. The genocide, slavery, no. That'd be bad. Yeah. But, I don't know. Speaking Spanish would not bother me one bit. Um, No, not at all. Let me out. (laughs) So, the Spanish are seeing a potential opportunity here. But what the Spanish ambassador did not know was that two relief ships reached Jamestown in May of 1610. 
and they found the situation so dismal that Sir Thomas Gates, arriving to assume the governorship of the colony, decided to embark the remaining 60 survivors, set sail for England, and admit that the English failed on the Chesapeake. So, Sir Thomas Gates, he (laughs) just gets here. It's 1610. And he's like, wow, this sucks. Fuck this. Let's leave. He's like, we out. (laughs) Give me one month from May and I'm out. We're out. (laughs) So, we kind of see, at least for the moment, that it seems that, hey, Powhatan's policy is working. Mm Mm-hmm. On June 7, 1610, Gates ordered the forlorn settlement stripped of its meager possessions, loaded the handful of survivors aboard, and set sail down the James River for the open sea. The ships dropped anchor for the night after reaching the Chesapeake Capes and planned to start the return ocean voyage to the following day. Uh, you want to read the rest of that? Oh, yeah. And guess what happens, y'all? Just like a movie, right? On the next morning, three ships came into sight. They carried 150 new recruits sent out by the Virginia Company of London and a new governor, Sir Thomas, Sir Thomas West, Lord of De La War. Don't know what that means, but a new governor, Sir Thomas West. Jamestown, at its moment of of extinction, was reborn. (sighs) So the Virginia Company in London just can't say, dude, we failed, man. Let's get out. They're like, nah, we got to make that money. There's something to be made over here. Got to think of the shareholders. (laughs) We got to think of the shareholders, indeed. Or uh, given that they're like old English, it's more like, oh, we must consider the stakes of our holders. (laughs) but there's a problem though because now we have new 150 new recruits sent out by the virginia company but these are new recruits with new mentalities right so Mm. check this out newly armed and provisioned the revitalized jamestown colonists revived their militaristic indian policy and what amounted to an on-again, off-again war between 1610 and 1613. So right here, from the time that John Smith started to raid Powhatan's uh, villages for corn, and even here, it seems to me that the English can't give up this militaristic attitude toward the Indians. I mean, what about you? What do you think? Yeah, it seems like hostilities are brimming. They don't... It really makes me think about that mindset that they already have about them. That they're these untrustworthy, warlike, violent people. uh, Cruel pagans. And it's really kind of peaking at this point with this firm, hostile policy towards... Uh, the Confederacy, the Powhatan Confederacy here. Yeah, yeah. So, the new attitude towards the the Powhatan Confederacy was apparent in the issues ordered in 1609 for the governing colony. Earlier, the Virginia Company instructed, in all of your passages, you must have great care 
not to offend the naturals if you can eskew it. That's <laughs> earlier. Yeah, that was before. Now. This is 1609. Yeah. <laughs> the naturals. <laughs> now, the governor ordered to effect a military occupation of the region between the James and the York rivers to make all tribes tributary to him rather than Powhatan to extract corn, furs, dyes, and labor from each tribe, and if possible, to mold the natives into mm. an agricultural labor force as the Spanish had done in their colonies. So this is where we see the original plan kind of creeping its head up again. The goal here is to subjugate them ultimately, but to get to that point, they're going to attempt to dominate and call, conquer like the smaller tribes that are part of Powhatan's confederacy. So if, if we were to kind of bring up that map again, and conquer. yeah, this is not necessarily yeah. going into the crescent. This is probably more like tribes that exist inside and outside of that crescent. Yeah. So they can surround Powhatan's crescent. Yeah. And that way, each of these individual tribes would basically serve as tributaries. So that means they would be forced to send, you know, like food and supplies and labor. And that's kind of the arrangement that the English are hoping to accomplish here. So from 1610 to 1612, Powhatan attacked the colonists whenever opportunities presented themselves. And the English mounted fierce attacks that decimated three small tribes and destroyed two Indian villages. Much of the corn that sustained the colony in these years seems to have been extracted by force from Powhatan's villages. Although tribes on the fringe of Powhatan's rule gladly traded maize for English shovels, hatchets, scissors, glass beads, and bells. So there are some tribes who aren't particularly keen on being subservient to Powhatan. And some of them see the English as an opportunity to potentially trade and get different supplies and tools with. Yeah. And re remember how we mentioned Pocahontas earlier when she, during the mock execution, she's like 12 years old. Yeah, yeah, 12 uh, years old. And that's in 1607. Yeah. yeah. So now we're at 1613. So that would make her what? Five or six years older. So she'd be 17, 17 or 18. Yeah. 17 or 18 Pocahontas. Yeah. So in 1613, the English kidnapped Pocahontas in a move designed to obtain a return of English prisoners and a quantity of weapons that the Indians acquired over the years. And as Pocahontas's abductor, Captain Samuel Argall, put it, to force payment of a great quantity of corn. Mm. Understanding that his daughter was not in harm's way, I mean, that seems kind of counterintuitive in the situation, but okay. Yeah. Uh, Powhatan made limited concessions to the English, but refused to satisfy all the ransom conditions. Well, you know, it's disturbing to me, too. Um, 
you remember how we talked about last episode, this colony was mostly made up of men. This is a sausage fest. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, oh no, they're kidnapping this young girl, this young Indian girl. I'm, I'm Pocahontas. I'm, yeah. What's going through my mind is assault. And, and it's, just, it's disturbing, but I'm like, I don't, I mean, I don't trust these dudes, man. I don't. Yeah. Your imagination is probably right on this situation that it's like, don't like where this idea is going. Mm. Um, this is well before the Virginia company starts sending, you know, single women to the colony. Yeah, yeah. Let's take it back. When was that? Because remember that uh, that funny line that said they sent <laughs> batches of women, unmarried women. Oh, here it is. Um, see, oh, this. Oh, in sixteen nineteen. Uh, the company shipped a boatload of unmarried women to the colony in order to improve morale and touch off a small population explosion. Company provided girlfriends. Yeah. That's so, a 16, yo. So that's six. Yeah. Women don't show up in this colony until like six years after the kidnapping of Pocahontas. Yeah. Well, very small because remember that dude had a wife that he ate. But yeah. what? Well, yeah. I mean, there wasn't zero women. But yeah. there was very, very few. Um, and <laughs> company provided girlfriends. I can't get over that. So, uh, Paul Hatton essentially is only making limited concessions to the English, and he's not yeah. satisfying all the ransom conditions. In the following yeah. year, 1614, when yeah. the widower John Rolfe vowed to marry Pocahontas. What? Yeah, there's a. A guy who lost his wife named John Rolfe. He just vows to marry her? Yeah. That, I'm going to marry that girl. What the hell? She's, she's 18 at this point, too, right? And a hostage. Oh, man. Yeah. So, after he vows to marry Pocahontas, uh, Powhatan reluctantly assents to what's called the first Anglo-Indian marriage in Virginia's history. And signs a humiliating peace treaty. Pocahontas becomes an instrument of an uneasy truce between the two societies and returned to England with Rolf and other members of Powhatan's Confederacy in 1616 in order to promote further colonization of the Chesapeake. She died on the eve of her return to Virginia in 1617 after helping to raise the money that pumped new lifeblood into the Virginia company and consequently sent hundreds of new fortune seekers to the Chesapeake as part of their population buildup that would lead to a renewal of hostilities five years after her death. Mm. That's fucking tragic. Yeah. And I can't, a lot, of, a lot of things happening there, man. And I can't imagine she did all that willingly. Yeah. Like, yeah, I'm going to let you colonize my people. Yeah, go ahead. Displace us. That's cool. Uh, well, think about it. Like, did she ever see her father again after she was kidnapped? Because. I don't think so. I'm not sure. Because she got married to John Rolfe. And then, she, and then, what, a year later, she went to England. And and before, on the eve of her returning to Virginia, she died. Yeah. Because she leaves to England 1616. She returns to Virginia 1617 and dies in the evening of her return. Mm. 
So I don't know and I don't believe that she probably raised money willingly. Like, she's already basically a hostage. Yeah, she pr- yeah. She's a captive of the English. And she's essentially abducted and stolen away to England in a forced marriage. And I wonder too what kind of internalization she suffered. I mean, I bet I bet her and those other Algon- uh, those other Indians that are going over to England are calling themselves savages. I I don't know. Like, you never savages. I mean, they probably had to deal with that being thrown in their faces like all the time in England. And I remember reading stuff how when she was in England, basically the English used her as like a role model to be like, oh, look how we civilize the savage. She's fluent Mm. in English and wears English dress. And it's like really fucking disgusting. I mean, and this can go and and these people, like I said, man, this pursuit of profit, this John Rolfe guy, he probably don't love Pocahontas. He just wants her for the money she can bring and the promotion that she can bring. Probably, hmm. yeah. That's it goes out to all ladies out there. I don't care if he has a million dollars. If he loves money more than anything else, he ain't gonna love money more than he loves you. Mm mm. So kick him to the curb, honey. But yeah, do you want to continue the reading? All right. Man, my Pocahontas. All right. So, although it has been commonplace in the popular mind since the moment when Europeans and Native Americans first met that the Europeans were advanced, quote unquote, and the Indians were, quote unquote, primitive, the technological differences between the two cultures were equaled or outweighed by the similar similarities between those two agricultural societies. That's an interesting point. The main technological advances, uh, advantages of the English were their ability to traverse large bodies of water and wooden ships, and their superiority in fashioning iron weapons and implements. But also, the Indians quickly incorporated such Iron Age items as kettles, fish hooks, traps, needles, and knives... And guns into their material culture. Uh, In return, they provided the English with an understanding of how to use nets and wires to catch the abundant fish and selfish of the Chesapeake waters. Uh, And introduced intruders to a wide range of agricultural products in Europe before the year 1492, when Columbus, quote unquote, discovered uh, the Americas. So the English in Virginia learned uh, from the natives, how to cultivate tobacco, tobacco, corn, beans, squash, pumpkins, and other food products. So Algonquins also introduced the English to a wide range of medicinal herbs, dyes, and such important devices as the canoe. So that's pretty cool too. In that, despite all this war, we're also learning from each other. And can you imagine without, without the war? How much more we would have learned? Yeah, because essentially, like, the technological, quote-unquote, advances honestly seem very relative to the location. Like, Mm -hmm. stuff like guns, for example. If you're in Europe, 
where everyone else has guns? Yeah, that makes sense. Like, the people who have guns obviously have an advantage over the people who don't have guns. But if you're in a situation where literally nobody has fucking guns, then guns really aren't really pertinent. They're not really a priority. Whereas for the native peoples here, obviously they're more, their technology is advanced in regards to the relationship to the land uh, and the waters, you know, agricultural, I guess you could say um, stuff that's actually useful to survive in these places. Um, Whether it's like stuff like, corn dyes things like that um or if it's like fishing and things like that Mm -hmm. oh yeah because i bet the natives were better fishers than the english yeah the english didn't have a shit (laughs) like the english remember um, we're starving so you said uh, oh yeah i'm sorry yeah it's easy to fall i think into this trap of technological advancement you know, as if, you know, the English are showing up with, like, spaceships and laser beams or whatever. And it's not really the case. It's very, it's a very relative thing. Um, there's, like, a lot of people that I have seen, for example, try to defend European colonization of Africa. And they'll cite examples of, like, well, the people in, like, north or west or central africa people like along the sahara right like well they didn't have they never invented the wheel oh but when you think about their geography and stuff like that you're near the sahara you're in central africa you're in like north central africa what good is the wheel really gonna do you in a place like that Mm, yeah so yeah I think we should keep that in mind in the future when we talk about technological advancements and stuff like that and colonization. But we have. Oh, I like ahead. what he said. Well, I just like what he said. They were the technology were equal in a sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, you got me thinking when you talked about guns. What, what's the use of guns to Native Americans before the English arrived? And I and I thought about uh, the the. The K dramas, the the South Korean drama TV shows that I watch mm-hmm. with my wife, and uh, this is hilarious. But uh, anyway, my wife and I are watching this TV show right called Bad Guys, Vile City. It's a Netflix K drama, and one thing you notice about watching these K dramas is they don't have gun as many guns here in America. <laughs> right? And you'd be like, why is that funny? Because, check this out. In this TV show, Bad Guys Vile City, the police, right, and the gangs, they fight each other. And, like, they fight. There are no guns. So they're fighting with lead pipes. They're fighting with knives. They're fighting with golf clubs. They're fighting with bats. And it's fucking <laughs> hilarious because they're all fighting and they're fucking hitting each other with these clubs. Boom, bam, boom. It's like and a, it's like it's not even facing them. It's like a WWE match, you know, where they're just swinging yeah, steel like, chairs at each yeah, other. Yeah, it's like a weapons match. They, they're just hitting each other. Rah, boop, boop. And this is like a battle going on, right? And I'm just laughing. Like, where's the gun? 
gang, like, like a gang, Korea. A, a gang member like power bombs a <laughs> Korean cop through a table. Uh, dude, they did, dude did do a power bomb, broke somebody's back, but uh, but they're just hitting each other literally in the heads with these bats and like metal pipes and just getting up and keep fighting, boom, boom, and other no, they're kicking each other, they're kicking each other and punching each other, and I'm like, dude, in America, in the United States of America, this shit would be so different. Everybody would have a gun. <laughs> And, and, like, last night, the fight we were watching was lasting, like, an hour. And they were, it was the gang and the police, and they were just hitting each other. They were charging each other with these bats and golf clubs. Like, and also, sometimes in these K-dramas, sometimes the knives, the, a knife is blurred out. But it's like, what? why is a knife blurred? <laughs> But the guns aren't. Whenever they rarely do show a gun, <laughs> but wow, <laughs> that's what they remind me of. But oh man, I laugh so hard when I watch these guys fight. Yeah. Right. Okay. All right, so let's go down here to the War of sixteen twenty-two. Oh, you still there, Cornbread? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, dude, I'm sorry. My voice keeps. I, I keep having like this red bar here on the Discord. Oh yeah, it's probably your yeah, connection. Oh man, what is up with my connection, man? I, I don't know. Anyway, All right. War of sixteen twenty-two. So we left off kind of around sixteen seventeen, right when Pocahontas kind of returns from England, dies in Virginia on the night of her return. So we're yeah. in a situation where, yeah, there's war going on between the English and the Algonquins, but there's also kind of like material exchange. Yeah. Uh, you know, weapons, agricultural implements, stuff like that. Um, but we're going a little forward now. And we're seeing an... Oh. In like a population boom of sorts mm -hmm. in Jamestown. And we also not see only like a population boom, but we're also seeing a growth of their tobacco industry. Like yeah. Jamestown is starting to turn a profit finally. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's turning into a slaughterhouse. Remember the last episode? <laughs> yeah. We uh, with the servitudes and the slaves and the conditions under which they were working. There was a price for this material prosperity. Mm -hmm. This pursuit of profit really starts to sh to really have more of a toll. And but anyway, right now Virginia becomes a very important money crop. It's cultivating and exporting tobacco. Yeah. Uh, and as a result, to continue being profitable and to continue its growth, they need more land. And with the arrival of more and more people to the colony, they obviously start to eyeball Indian territory as land to seize for cultivation. So do you want to... Continue reading what you've underlined here? Oh, yeah, absolutely. All right, so um, 
While giving Virginia an important money crop, the cultivation of tobacco created an, an enormous new demand for land. Right? Mm-hmm. So this pursuit of profit, right? This pursuit of land, which I can use to make more money. As more and more colonists pushed up the rivers that flowed into the Chesapeake Bay to carve out tobacco plantations, the Indians of the re- region perceived then what had previously previously been just an abrasive and sometimes violent relationship might now become a disastrous one. So Powhatan, he had retired in 1617, just as tobacco cultivation began to expand rapidly. He's like, I'm too old for this shit. <laughs> so his younger brother, oh boy, uh, his younger brother, Opechankano. Opechankano? I think it's Opechankano. Opechankano. We can say Opechankano, I think. Opechankano? Yeah. Or okay. do you just want to call him Brother O? You know, out of respect for this brother's name, if I'm butchering it, um, I'm going to call him Brother O. Okay. So, Powhatan, I'm too old for this. He retires in 1617. And Powhatan's younger brother... Brother O, he assumes leadership of the Tidewater tribes, and he concludes that he must embark on a program of military rebirth, renaissance, and spiritual revitalization. So he's like, man, we got to build our military, get it stronger, and we've got to revitalize the spiritualism. We're slacking. We're slacking. So Brother O was battling not only against the land encroaching English, but also against diseases that were spreading among the Indian population. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, man. And the deadliest of all European weapons, it was not the sword. It was not the arrow. It was the microorganisms brought ashore in nearly every immigrant. So, in the che- for example, in the Chesapeake region, minor epidemics had taken their toll in the 1580s and again in 1608. And uh, between 1617 and 1619, another epidemic decimated the Powhatan tribes. So, the Indians are losing people left and right, not due to war, well, also due to warfare, but mostly due to disease for which they had no immunity. These dirty Europeans coming over here. Well, I I don't know. I have to give the Europeans some slack here because it's not like it's their fault that they have these diseases. Yeah, they shouldn't be over here, but still, you know. So this dude, Brother O, very interesting. He's relying heavily on a war captain of his named... Nematanu. Is that how you say it? I like to say Nematanu. Nematanu? Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Nematanu. Dope. So Brother O's relying heavily on this war captain named Nematanu. And this Nematanu, he is not only a war hero, he's a charismatic religious prophet. And the English calling Jack of the Feathers. Because Nematanu leads warriors into battle covered with feathers and swan wings fashioned in his shoulders as though he were meant to fly. Just imagine this dude <laughs> leading a war band 
and he's got like wings and stuff and he's killing oh, oh yeah <laughs> he's killing you and your boys and he's <laughs> he's a holy man too he's not just a yeah. elite warrior he's a holy man <laughs> i don't know i'd be like who's that fairy over there <laughs> who's this bird he's it's Birdman over here, Jack of the Feathers. That's interesting, though. Jack of the Feathers. What what, what does that mean, Jack? What's it, Jack of the Feathers? I... I don't know. Like a prince, maybe? You know, like Jack uh. on the card. Oh, okay. Like playing cards? I would have called him Birdman or something. Uh. Anyway, so we have like <laughs> a warrior prophet on the field of battle. Oh, yeah. Leading warriors to glory. <laughs> against the colonizers here a shadow oh oh, go ahead okay a shadowy figure who came often to the english settlements the matineau had convinced his tribe that he was immortal and that they would become immune to musket fire if they rub they rub their bodies with a special ointment nice imagine you know the the ointment I was like, yo, those musket balls, they can't hurt you. Just get this ointment on you. And these dudes, well, they they, they, <laughs> they rub it all, and they're they're glistening with the ointment, right? Yeah. And the bullets just bounce off them, like, pew, pew, pew. <laughs> like, it's like a video game or something. <laughs> yeah. I, I wish that were reality. That'd be awesome. Um, Okay. In March 1622, as Brother O... I know, honestly, I'm just going to say his name is Opechenkinov. Because that's what oh, it looks no. like to me. Opechenkinov. <laughs> He's not Russian. <laughs> but you can see it's like Nuff. Like enough Opechenkinov? Yeah, no, yeah. Maybe Opechenkinov. I'm just going to say dope, that. Though. I like that. <laughs> I'm just going to say that. I don't want to use Brother O anymore. All Respect right. to this guy's name. Uh, in March 1622... As Opechenkinov's war was, oh wait, as Opechenkinov was piecing together plans for a unified attack on the Virginia settlements, a colonist murdered Nematinu in retaliation for another oh. settler's death. So our, what? what? That's so <laughs> anticlimactic. I, I know, what happened? Like, oh man. You have this guy and he's being... Oh. Ad- introduced as like a badass into the story right and then boom he's dead yeah it's like what is that it oh man just by some rando white guy nematinu's death triggered the famous indian assault two weeks later that dealt the colony a staggering blow but the but the highly combustible atmosphere generated by a half dozen years of white expansion and pressure on Indian hunting lands was the fundamental crane of the attack. Is that what it says? Yeah, cause of the attack. Oh, the fundamental cause of the attack. Okay. Although it did not achieve its goals of ending English presence in the Chesapeake area, the carefully planned Indian attack of 1622 and the famine that followed it wiped out nearly half the white population. <clears throat> Included among the victims was Opechenkinov's nephew by marriage, John Rolfe. Good. Yeah, Fuck John Rolfe. Yeah, I agree. I'm glad he's dead. 
It was the final straw for the Virginia Company of London, which declared bankruptcy <gasps> and left the colony to the governance of the crown. Yes. So the Virginia The Virginia Company is tapping out. They're done. They have filed bankruptcy. It only took them thir- no, 15 years. Yeah. It took this one carefully planned attack and a famine that followed because remember this is a colony where agriculture is like the bread and butter. It's also like the spine and the, the lifeblood of the colony. And if a famine comes along, nothing's growing, food or tobacco for that instance, and people are starving to death and half the people are dead, then that's crippling financially. So Opachenkinov crippled <laughs> crippled the colony yeah well I, I wonder why the virginia company in london didn't pull out in 1610 when they were literally eating each other i guess maybe there was like pressures in england to where mm. they just couldn't sustain it anymore is my guess Man. but now the virginia company of london tapped out they're done the government the government, or rather the the crown, assumes control, direct yeah, control. The English government. Yeah. yeah. So Virginia and Jamestown proper essentially become proper royal colonies. Mm. They're state interests now. Wow. Only took them 12 years. No, that, well, hold on. That's very interesting, though, because... Hold on. This reminds me of something I've been reading about here, about cryptocurrencies. Really? Um, well, also, going back before that, it reminds me of how whenever there's a, in, in the United States of America, whenever there's a, a bust in the economy, right, a recession, especially the Great Depression in 1930, early 30s, late 20s, and even the the most recent great recession in 2008 onward um the government takes over or bails out a lot of businesses and this is what this is reminding me of but wait remember the review of that book on amazon mm the authors give governments a pass though cuz <laughs> communism that hold on in that book global problems and the culture of capitalism no way that book does not give governments a pass that gu- that book explains the government's complicity the government's fundamental role in propping up the system of capitalism and worldwide economic domination yeah so it that guy them. That guy's got a stick up his ass or something. He don't know what the hell he's talking about. No, governments are basically complicit in, like, the atrocities of private enterprises all the time. Absolutely. And one thing that I speak, and I said cryptocurrency, right? One thing, I saw two stories here in my news feed, um, because I I have a finance um, subscription, I guess. Um, and I saw two stories about how, and this is disturbing to me. I saw two stories about how um, 
investment bankers are now looking into cryptocurrencies for their clients. That disturbs me because of this fact. Yeah. Or because of the possibility that the government can now be involved in this. Think about it. What if um, you look at the history, you even look at 2008, right? Mm -hmm. And the government is involved now because of the greedy practices of investment bankers. The government gets involved more heavily in areas such as insurance, AIG, for example. What happens when there's a crash, because there is going to be a crash, there's always a crash in capitalism. What happens yeah. when there's a crash with cryptocurrency and people's pensions, pensions are relying upon that? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the reasons why the gov one of the reasons why the government felt the need the United States government felt the need to step in uh, to the uh, to the economy during the two thousand eight crash was to protect people's investments. I mean, on the one hand, you have very corrupt government officials such as Treasury Treasury uh, secretaries. But also, the United States government felt the need to step in because people's pensions, people's investments were on the line. So that whole, I don't want the government involved in cryptocurrency. And that, just, that disturbs me. I just fucking hate cryptocurrency so much. Absolutely. I mean, and think about it, too. The, the makers of these cryptocurrencies say, yeah, we don't want uh, we something that's not tied to the dollar. Well, you fucking idiots. If you allow investment firms and investment bankers to invest for their clients, these cryptocurrencies, the government's going to get involved, you fucking idiot. I mean, don't you people read books? I, I don't understand it. Right now on my desk, I have this book. The Predator's Ball, the inside, the inside story of Drexel Burnham and the rise of the junk bond raiders. Yeah, yeah. I, I also have Griftopia. It's like these people need to read books and understand this shit. And oh, have you also noticed that the only people making money off cryptocurrency are the people who already have to begin with? Yeah. You mean guys <laughs> with the money? Who've been in it for so long that they're going to be the biggest winners in that whole yeah. thing. Exactly, yeah. It, it, yeah. Don't be fooled, ladies and gentlemen. Don't be The fooled. people who make money off this stuff are not you people like you and I. And we're going to see a little bit more as we carry on who's really profiting from this whole enterprise now. Because the government, the crown is stepping in and they're going to step things up too quite a bit and by that uh well let's say it's a bit of the g word that we're going to talk about here in a few oh yeah well well here's the problem the virginia company in london had this pursuit of profit and even before the government came in right we talked about that last week even before the government came in you still had this pursuit of profit mentality creating indentured servitude indentured servants and now slaves, indentured servants and slaves are already here by 1622. By the time the English government takes over Jamestown and makes it a colony officially, mm -hmm. you already have indentured servitude and you already have slaves. Yeah. Now it's going to happen. We're going to find out. Oh, yeah. So this is the aftermath of the 
attack of 1622, which essentially crippled the colony. The more important result was that those who survived the attack felt free to pursue a ruthless new Indian policy. Even though several leaders in the colony confided to men in England that the real cause of the Indian attack was our own perfidious dealing with them, mission of guilt here, it was generally agreed that henceforward the colonists would be free to hunt down the Indians wherever they could be found, abandoning an obligation to quote-unquote civilize and Christianize the natives, the Virginians adopted an ob- a no-holds-barred approach to the quote-unquote Indian problem. One Virginian hmm. wrote revealingly after the attack, Our hands, which before were tied with gentleness and fair usage, are hmm. now at liberty by the treacherous violence of the savages, so that we who have hitherto have had possession of no more ground than their waste and what's that say? Our purchase and our purchase at a valuable consideration to their own contentment gained made now by right of war and law of nations invade the country and destroy them who sought to destroy us. Again, there's that whole image the whole uh, imagination that the natives only want to destroy the english whereby we shall enjoy their cultivated places turning the laborious mattock into the victorious sword and possessing the fruits of others labors mm-hmm. conquest and slavery Now their cleared grounds and all of their villages, which are situated in the fruitfulest places of the land, shall be inhabited by us. Whereas heretofore the grubbing of which of what woods or which the grubbing of woods was the greatest labor. So this is another primary source. This is from a Virginian. Hmm. This is a guy who's there who wrote in the aftermath of the attack of 1622. We have from the English own words what they planned to do. Well, let's stop right here and let's talk about the G word. People, you may be wondering, all right, what is the G word? Because this word is not a word to be taken lightly very serious genocide let's talk about is this genocide here so we're told in this section that you read the colonists will be free to hunt down the indians whenever they could be when, when, wherever they could be found mm-hmm. All right. so we're gonna in this primary source this is it waterhouse this guy's saying we are going to invade the country and destroy them. We're going to take their land. We're going to hunt them down wherever we can. Let's look at this definition of genocide here. Yeah, we're going to be going off a pretty... Because genocide 
is not really a term that people had back then or like a a abstract conception or a definition for it's a pretty modern one but we're going to use that and we're going to see whether the events that take place after 1622 constitute genocide so what, where I went, and the foremost authority on genocide are the United Nations. So UN.org. Because mm-hmm. the United Nations coined this term after the Holocaust. And so here is the official, the official definition for genocide. It's very interesting, too, because a lot of people throw this word around, but it's like, well... Does it meet this definition? So here we go. The official definition of genocide, according to the United Nations, three, two, one. In the present convention, genocide, genocide means any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group as such. A, killing members of the group. B, causing seriously bodily or mentally harm to members of the group. C, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. D, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. E, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. Woo! That is a lot to process, ladies and gentlemen. So, the United Nations defines genocide by any one of those acts that I said, A, B, C, or D, A, B, C, D, or E, mm-hmm. committed with the intent, the purpose to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group. So, what we see here are these English colonists now, after this war of 1622... This, these English colonists are hunting down and killing any Indians they see. Now, do they have the intent or purpose to destroy all of them? I, hmm. Let's, I don't let's, think that, I, that's, I don't know. Let's read and find out. And then maybe okay. we can come to a more conclusive answer. Yeah. So, and we'll keep this definition here. But that's the definition of genocide. We'll come back to that. So let's read more and find out. Right? Yep. So because, yeah, because we don't because we don't don't want to call it call it genocide because it's a very serious thing. Mm-hmm. So let's read more. All right. Go right ahead. So let's see here. I'm looking at the passages that I underlined here in the other passages. So, in the sentences uh, that you read, Cornbread, one can detect a note of grim satisfaction that the Indians had succeeded in wiping out one quarter of the colonists. So, the genocide on their part? So, John Smith, writing from England two years after the attack, noted that some men held that the attack will be good for their plantation because now we have just cause to destroy them by all means possible. Ooh, that's kind of sound like genocide. Remember, John Smith wrote that yep. from England. Um, another writer expressed a prevalent genocidal urge by reasoning that the Indians had done 
the colonists a favor by sweeping away the previous English reluctance to annihilate the Indians. He enumerated with relish the ways that the savages could, the quote-unquote savages, could be exterminated. Victory, he wrote, may be gained by many ways, by force, by surprise, by famine and burning their corn, by destroying and burning their boats, canoes, and houses, by breaking their fishing wires, by selling them in their huntings, whereby they got the greatest part of their sustenance in winter, by pursuing and chasing them with our horses and bloodhounds to draw after them and mastiffs to tear them. Seems pretty is, genocidal yeah. to me. It sounds mm. like uh, mass murder. This is like a hunting. Like, we're going out and we're killing all of them. And these guys sound like, at least this source in particular, he's he's loving this idea. He's, like, fantasizing about how this, on it. How this goal can be achieved. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, let's go burn their boats. Mm. Let's and send, their famine. Mm. Let's send dogs. Oh yeah, terrible part. Oh, you can use yeah, man. bloodhounds to, to to chase them, and then you could use the mastiffs to just rip them to shreds. Oh, we're such good Christians. This is what Jesus would want. And they're creaming in their pants while they're thinking of it. But yeah, Oof. once the Virginians slated their thirst for revenge, the only debatable point was whether the extermination of the Tidewater Indian tribes would work to the benefit or disadvantage of the colony. One prominent planter offered reasons why it is not fitting utterly to make an extirpation of the savages yet. This is in Old English, by the way. Yeah, extirpation. Didn't that mean elimination? I, I guess extirpation. I've never seen that up. word before. Extirpation. Yeah, we're yeah. reading Old English here. And that's, the, that's uh, from the words of a planter. A, a prominent planter. He's not just oh, some that random extinction. dude. Oh, okay. This dude's got a vested interest in the yes. question about whether to genocide the native people or to see them, like, enslaved, you know? Mm. And then assured his neighbors that he was not against genocide per se, but opposed to the destruction of a people who, if properly subjugated, could enrich all Virginians through their labor. And we can just make them slaves instead. Yeah, and th- oh. remember, this guy is he's not ruling genocide off the table. He's like, oh, God. Yeah, this guy is like, you know, I'm not actually opposed to that, but what if we could just make them all like slaves like we originally planned? But both This is notorious, man. Yeah. This is, like, the common sentiment, I guess, among, like, people in his position. Because remember, this guy is a planter. He has land. He makes his money off agriculture. And he has a vested interest in acquiring more land and potentially slaves to work those lands. Mm. But both subjugation and assimilation required more time and trouble than the Virginians were willing to spend. The simpler course, consistent with instructions from London to, quote, root out the Indians from being any longer a people, unquote, was to follow a scorched earth policy 
sending military expeditions for each summer to destroy villages and crops. In 1629, the council negotiated a peace treaty, but then rejected it because a state of quote-unquote perpetual enmity would serve the colony better. The acculturation of the two people, even if possible, was not desirable. So the leadership at this point is leading towards genocide. Yeah, this is yeah. I don't see I don't see how anybody cannot consider this genocide. The the instructions from London, right, to quote root out the Indians from being any longer a people, unquote. Yeah. They yeah. they want perpetual war at this point. Yeah. Because this isn't the Virginia company that's forking the bill for all these expenses all the expenses of this. It's the crown. It's a crown colony. They they just get straight tax. They can use tax money to do this. They can they have resources that the Virginia Company of London doesn't have. Yeah, so, and it's it's screwed up too that in 1629 the Council of Jamestown even said no, we don't need a peace treaty. We're rejecting it. Yeah. For a number, yeah, yeah I'll continue. Okay. For a number of years after the 1622 attack, the Virginians were not strong enough to carry out their genocidal urges on native peoples, though they have found a formula for building a viable society. But by 1640, Virginia had grown to about 8,000 settlers. By 1662, the population swelled to 25,000 and the colony was shipping 7 million pounds of tobacco a year to England. Although the crown appointed a royal governor to rule in conjunction with an appointed council and an elected house of burgesses, which are kind of like mayors, I guess you could say like a burger, uh, the real power in the colony lay at the local level, where each tobacco planter operated autonomously with little regard for centralized authority. Mm. And mind you, these are the people who are exploiting indentured servants and African slaves to harvest these crops for them. Mm. These are landed wealthy people who have the real power in Jamestown. Men like Governor John Harvey, appointed in 1626, could complain that these planters acted, quote, rather for their own ends than either seeking the general good or doing right to particular men, unquote. But he could do little to foster a spirit of community or curb the appetites of the land-hungry, profit-conscious tobacco planters. When he proposed that there should be a lasting peace with the Indians and that the Chesapeake tribes be left unmolested on the land that they were occupying, the planters refused to cooperate. Mm. And that that's probably, th- those sentences are probably the most, uh, those sentences prove this profit motive, this pursuit of profit. When, um, these land-hungry, profit-conscious tobacco planters, right? Mm-hmm. And look at this too. But the governor, John Harvey, could do little to, little to foster a spirit of community or curb the appetites of the land-hungry, profit-conscious tobacco planters. I mean, that's another thing that comes with this profit uh, motive here is lack of community. With the profit motive comes this 
huge individualistic uh, spirit that says, I'm going to make as much money for me, myself, and I. Forget about everybody else. I'm going to be rich. I'm going to be wealthy to the detriment of my community. I mean, and you can even see that in the mentality of drug dealers, of of sex traffickers, right? They yeah. don't care about a community. They want profit. It's alienation. Mm. Yeah, it's short-term gain to the detriment of everybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it, it's it, it reminds me so much of what that beautiful brother, Curtis Mayfield, said when he wrote in the song, People Get Ready. He wrote, there ain't no room for the hopeless sinner who would hurt all mankind just to save his own. And that these are these planners right here, man. There's no room for these people. There's no room for these people that would bankrupt an entire economy just so that they could make short term gain and profit. And give huge bonuses to their executives. And I'm talking about the investment banking world. And I'm talking about you, Goldman Sachs, in particular. So, ain't no room for these people, man. They got that profit motive. And this pervades American history from a time before even America became a country. I would include Jeff Bezos into that particular category as well. Oh yeah, yeah. That oh yeah, that self-made man, Jeff Bezos. He's so self-made. Oh, so self-made off the backs <laughs> of how many thousands of workers. Also, he could <laughs> fuck off into space for like eleven minutes. <laughs> also, I'm referring to the loan he got from his parents, but of course, that too. You know, my parents gave me. They gave me debt. You just got debt with no <laughs> money. <laughs> No, check this out. Do you know I have four cases against me? They're all closed, but I have four cases against me in the uh, records of the county where I live. Yeah, you told me about sure. that. You told me all about that. And one of them is of something I did. It's a traffic ticket, right? Mm-hmm. I admit I, I effed up. I screwed up. But three of those four cases were debt collections from credit cards that weren't even mine that were taken out in my name from my parents. Oof. That I didn't even know about. <laughs> yeah. Until I got a phone call one day. <laughs> a faithful so, phone call. Your parents gave you loan much. My parents gave me <laughs> you debt. A, you're an indentured servant. <laughs> yeah. I would be, check this out. I would be in debtor's prison right now, probably, if we lived in Maryland, England in, during this time period. Yeah. Even though I didn't do anything. Like, like, don't ex- don't expect fairness in this world, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. So we have a, a going back. We got a situation where the plantation owners are basically the ones with the real power, and nothing, mm. nobody can make them cooperate with the central authority in Jamestown. Mm. And it's really in their vested interest to perpetuate genocide. Yeah, so they can get more land. Yeah. And the kind of... And going forward, I'm looking at page 61, because we're almost through. Oh, yeah. I'm actually just this page, actually. Yeah, I'm looking at the section that you underlined. It was such tough, self-made, ambitious people as these unhindered by religious or humanitarian concern were the Indians... 
and unrestrained by government that the Chesapeake tribes had to confront after 1630. So, well, and not only them, uh, look, but look above. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that governor, uh, governor John Harvey, who's complaining about the planners. Yeah. Well, look at what happened to this dude. So when Harvey tried again in 1635 to impose his will and basically say, hey, chill the fuck out, landowners, Virginia's leaders plotted against him and provoked violence and evicted him from the colony while sending petitions back to the mother country, England, complaining of his arbitrary and unreasonable policies. They basically so kicked his ass out. Yeah. If you were a dissenter, if you didn't have this profit motive, well, you had to shut up. Because if not, you were going to get violence and you were going to get sent back if they did not right kill you then. But if you were an Indian, they were going to kill you outright. Yeah. So these scheming pieces of shit were not only like predators towards the the native people. They were predators towards like anyone that opposed them in the colony. Mm. Yeah, and that's another thing we're going to see with the Puritans yep. on the next podcast. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> they also had to face the, sh- the rapidly shifting population balance, the drastic decline of their numbers by disease and war during the first quarter century of English presence and the rapid increase of English colonists in 1624. So there's a demographic shift in the region you're seeing a lot less of the natives because of war and disease and a lot more of the english because of migration these factors were beyond the control of the chesapeake tribes even so the natives continue to follow their traditional way of life years of contact with european culture had done little to convince them that they should remodel their religion social and political organization or values and beliefs on English patterns. Preach that. Powhatan's people eagerly incorporated technological innovations and material objects of the newcomers into their culture, but they resisted or rejected other aspects of European life. They figured, you know, some of the stuff isn't bad, but all the else, no, don't need it. Though greatly weakened by disease and war, many Algonquins were still determined to drive out the English intruders. And let's be face it, the English are intruders here. Yeah. Rather than adapt to in an alien culture. Though far fewer in number than in 1622, the Powhatan Confederacy's tribesmen attacked in April 1644 under the leadership of the age Opechenkanoff, or Brother O. His warriors carried him into battle on a leader. That the young warriors, oh, yeah, yeah, that the young warriors were willing to risk an all-out attack, knowing the grim reprisals that would rain down on them if they were defeated, indicates the stubborn resistance of the Indians to cultural annihilation. So, as far as the native people are concerned, here, they are going to risk it all they are not going to accept cultural annihilation. They're not going to accept subjugation. They would rather risk it all and die fighting than to be... Yeah. Than to be completely subjugated. 
What's that saying? I'd rather live on my feet than... No. I'd rather die on my feet than live on my knees. That's basically the approach. Yeah, this probably he's being carried to battle on a litter. That probably means he's old and cannot walk. He's he's an old guy. He's used to fighting. How do you pronounce the pronunciation of his name, dude? Pachenkinov? It sounds Russian. Pachenkinov. Listen. If you can pronounce Dostoyevsky <laughs> with no problem, then you should have no problem pronouncing Opachekinov. But the Nov part, Opachekinov? Oh, no. Because it looks like cough. You know? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it can all. <sighs> yeah, but, oh, man. This next part, though, is sad, man. When it yep. comes to the Powhatan tribes were again losers in the War of 1644, although they killed hundreds of colonists in about one-twelfth of the white population. They lost partially because, and this is interesting, they lost partially because the aid they expected from white Marylanders. Interesting, right? So apparently there were settlers in Maryland at this time, Mm -hmm. and they had beef with Virginia, and uh, and Opochenkinov was expecting help from those white Marylanders. Um, crazy. Yeah. Yet their determination apparently convinced the Virginians that Indians could h- rarely be cowed into submission. Rather than risk future wars, you, uh, colonists altered the policy six. You might want to repeat that because you cut it off. Oh, I'm sorry. So... Rather than risk future wars, the colonists altered the policy of the 1620s by signing a formal treaty in 1646 with the survivors of the Powhatan Confederacy. So, it drew a line between red or Indian and white territory and promised the Indians safety in their territory north of the York River. In return, though, the Powhatan tribes agreed to render military assistance in the event of an attack by tribes outside the Chesapeake area and promised a yearly tribute of beaver skins to the Virginia colony in acknowledgement of their subject status. Powhatan's Confederacy died with this peace treaty. So the once proud people of Powhatan have now been subjugated to subjects. They're tributaries. Their role is to provide resources and military assistance on a whim at this point to the English. And look at these numbers, dude. Check this out. You got your calculator ready? Oh, boy. Don't make me do math. We're going to have to do some percentages up in this mother. So, when Virginians took a census in the year 1669... Only 11 of the 28 tribes described by John Smith in 1608 and only 2,900 of the 20,000 Indians present when the English arrived remained in the colony. So 11 of 28. What percentage of that? So there were 28 tribes in 16, Indian tribes in 1608. When John Smith, described by John Smith in 1608, and only 11 remained. So that's around 39%. 39%. Yeah. 11 and is 39% of 28. Okay. 
and only 2,900 of the 20,000 Indians present when the English arrived remained in the colony. But what is that? That's about 15% maybe? What was the total number? 20,000. 20,000? Yeah, 2,900 of the 20,000 remained, of Indians remained. Uh, 14.5%. 14. So these numbers, man, 39% of the tribes are left. 14% of the Indians are left. So I blame this on the English, but I also blame disease. But we, I don't think we can... I think it's debatable, but I'm going to err on the side of this was, uh, part of this was genocide. How about you? Oh, I'd say it's genocide. Absolutely. There's no question in my mind that that's genocide. I mean, when you have the, the order from London, from the mother country, to root out the Indians from being any longer a people, I mean, under that definition of genocide, bada boom! That's genocide. Mm -hmm. Killing members of the group with intent to destroy that group. Yeah. Crazy. And and, and this definition of genocide, dude, is so much more uh, rich that you can get into. But, man. So we see a catastrophic decrease Mm. in the native population. And it's being replaced by the English, who are subjugating the native tribes to basically tributary status. And think about it, too. Why are, why are they subjugating these tribes, and why are they killing these Indians? What do they want? It's ultimately profit. Profit. Yeah. They want the land to make more tobacco to sell to England. Profit. And the, most, and the people with the most interest in carrying out this genocide are rich plantation owners who refuse to cooperate yeah who refuse peace who also rely on slavery and exploitation Hmm. to get the harvest they rely on indentured servants and then when african slaves were cheaper they relied on african slaves increasingly more and more hmm yeah and that's where slavery comes into effect here. Yeah. So what we see here is a pattern of three things. Killing, stealing, slaving. Or to enunciate that more well, killing, stealing, and enslaving. And for you rappers out there, if anybody's a rapper, hey, there's a rap song you could talk about. It could be a socially conscious rap. You know, we need more of that today in mainstream rap. Socially conscious. Maybe you can be the one that does this rap. Killing, stealing, enslaving. And this is the pet we see associated with Jamestown. Killing, stealing, enslaving. I kind of want to record, I want to take that clip of an audio of you saying killing, stealing, killing, stealing, enslaving. And I kind of want to loop it at like a high, <laughs> and just like killing, and use it as a sample in the song. Killing, well, so if you did, I'd have to say it like this. Killing, stealing, enslaving. Killing, killing, stealing, enslaving. Killing, stealing, enslaving. No, don't say the and. Just say killing, still enslaving. Killing, still enslaving. There you go. I mean, I don't see how anybody 
after knowing this history, could could not see this pattern of killing, stealing, enslaving. This pattern, it, it pops up, man, like a fist punching you in your grill when you read this. And when you read the primary sources, when you read that order of root out the Indians from being no longer a people, woo, deep yeah. stuff, man. You can't, woo, man, genocidal maniacs want my land. They're going to enslave me if I don't defend it, man. Ah. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah. laughing like a clown, man. Like those doves in the cry in the, in the sky, tearing in their eyes, man. When doves cry, ooh, preach, brother. Let's take a look at because ooh. you highlighted some things here at the very end of oh, this okay. chapter. Yeah, the last page. Yeah, and essentially, it's kind of it's not only just like a summarization of every of the decline of the Indian population but around and from the arrival of the English, but it's also a compare and contrast to oh, okay. Spanish and Portuguese colonization of Mexico, Brazil, other parts of South America. Hmm. So let's yeah. take a look here. Okay. This can be best understood by looking comparatively at the English and Spanish systems of colonization. In the Spanish colonies, the densely settled Indians had been utilized effectively as a subjugated labor force, both in the silver mines and in agriculture. The Spanish had unerringly located the native population centers in Mexico and Peru and had made them the focal points of their colonizing efforts. The Indians supplied the bulk of the labor for the Spanish, extractive and productive enterprises in the early decades. Hence, it was not only desirable, but also necessary to assimilate them into the European Spanish culture. Moreover, the Spanish church had a vested interest in the Indians. It sent hundreds of missionaries to the colonies to obtain as many conversions as possible for the greater glory of the church. Also, because the Spanish immigrants were disproportionately male, Indian women served as the function of mistresses, concubines, and wives. Mm. So, killing, stealing, and slaving, there's a bit of that too. In this case, it's gendered and sexual. Um, The English in Virginia had none of these factors pertained except in the most limited way. The English brought no military force comparable to the conquistadors to subjugate the Chesapeake tribes and drive them into agricultural labor. The Anglican Church sent only a handful of clergy to the colony, and they made only token efforts to mount a missionary campaign. Their power over local settlers, so far as relations with the Indians were concerned, was minimal. Nor was there any significant sexual conjoining of English males and native women, partly because of English squeamishness <laughs> about women of another culture, but probably even more because Indian women living in tribes not subjugated by the English had no inclination to consort with men of the intruding society. They don't like white boys. <laughs> they don't like white boys. Interracial marriages were almost unknown in Virginia 
except in frontier areas where trappers and traders often made liaisons with native women. Only in the maize and fur trade where the Indian was food producer, trapper, and skin dresser did the natives serve the needs of the white colonist. But the trade for corn lasted only until the colonists became self-sufficient by 1616, and the fur trade was of negligible importance in the early Virginia settlements. And it kind of cuts off for me here, so I'll let you take care of the rest. Yeah, well, this next sentence, very telling. What the colonists primarily wanted from the Indian was cleared land. Boom, mic drop. That's what the English wanted, man. Yeah. They wanted the land. And that same drive, uh, you want to talk about even 200 years later, that same drive allowed England to uh, take up 25% of this world. <laughs> A quarter of the planet. Quarter of the, the sun never... British Empire, and we're seeing the beginnings of it. Unfortunately, a lot of people of color and just for, just people, human beings, forget about the color aspect. Human beings, there's a lot of blood and a lot of bones that go along with that conquest. Because we're all brothers and sisters, man, in this world. Whether you like it or not. Whether you like it or not. Even though the Indians apparently didn't like the English white boys. <laughs> Jeez, I can only imagine why. Can you imagine you're a, n- a native woman and you see this white guy dressed in his dorky, <laughs> like, pioneer clothes? He's got his socks going all the way up to his ankle or his his knees. And he's got these puffy pants and he's got some goofy looking, like, oh, shirt. Tobacco and shit. Yeah, he's like, mm. oh, and he's got the British teeth going on. Oi, love, you want to come over here and smoke some tobacco with me? His teeth are all black from tobacco, dipping yellow and black. Uh. Oi, my wife died of the plague, but you look fresh and young. <laughs> or that John Rolfe dude. I'm going to marry that Pocahontas. She just turned 18. She's legal. <laughs> hey, but at least she was 18, though. I mean, this is- was the time period when... Dude's married fucking 13, 14 year olds, man. I don't think that makes it any better because she's a forced bride. She is a forced bride. Yeah, that's still, yeah, still extremely messed up. Yeah. And that kind of wraps it up for the story of Jamestown. Yep. Not a happy ending. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's an interesting point you make because when we talk about the history of America, I mean... We're the richest country. Um, well, I mean, for now, uh, yeah, we for now, I guess. <laughs> but what is it built on? You know, where are the bodies buried? They're so buried under your fucking local Walmart. They're buried <laughs> underneath your fucking like town hall, underneath your churches. I mean, I love America. I, 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 I love the the freedom we have in this country. I, but I, I don't like our values. I don't like our values of profit, pursuit of profit. I don't like it. I don't like this pursuit of profit, which has this consumerist culture that bases your social status on your clothes, 
Money. I don't like it. Yeah, where you live, what you drive. Like, where you drive, where you live. It, who you consort with. We got to change, people. We got to... We got to... Re the reason why this is so important is because it allows us to re-examine our values. The value of profit, for example. Where did it lead us? And what, are, uh, are we uh, even fucking happy now? Yeah, thank you, yeah. And like, we're the, we, we're the richest country in the world, but we have most... We have tons of people on... You know, drug addicts, tons of people who are not happy and are using having other ways to trying to, to survive in this mentally. Yeah, we live in a country where it's like a single health care bill can destroy your whole life savings. You could lose yeah. your job. You can lose your house. You got you're in a country where to achieve any like social upward mobility Nine times out of ten, you got to take in like massive amounts of like student loan debt. Yeah, and, and the healthcare every and in this country, everything is based off of profit. Insurance companies, health insurance companies, like my my life changing surgery, my existential surgery should not be based on your fucking company's profit motive. But a, you know a fucking diabetic person should not have to like face the like the dilemma of either spending God knows how much amount of money on insulin or dying of diabetic shock, like just so a, a fucking company can profit off that and profit for short term gain. So your executives can make these bonuses. So your shareholders can make a profit. Fuck your shareholders. Fuck your goddamn executives. And fuck Elon Musk. Love your customers. Like love your workers. Fuck them all. If if they if their main goal is profit and ah, it just it's so troubling because everything everything literally is tied into this pursuit of profit. It's a value that pervaded american society then in virginia and it's pervading it now and i want to touch on one more thing too in relation to all that because a lot that we have talked about and i don't want to overlook this at all is how in relation to all the different native american peoples in america who are still fighting to have treaties that the United States government and Canada, too, recognize, but regularly violate all the fucking time to protect what little they have left, like to protect the fucking environment, like pipelines being built into native lands and shit. Like, you remember the whole Keystone pipeline? Oh, yeah. Like that. And they're still fighting to this day. The... That's still their fucking land. We're all on stolen land. And all of this was done for fucking... Remember how all this shit started from the very first episode. Some assholes in London wanted to make some fucking money. Yeah. The Virginia company, yeah. Yeah. And it was fun. Or what's... 
what's sad is that people don't even know. The, like, for example, the people who were so adamant that the Keystone Pipeline, that it, that we, they say the argument for it as opposed to against it, the argument for it is, A, we can get oil because, A, it'll drive down oil prices. Well, hold on. Wait a minute. Who's, who are the bastards who drove up the oil prices? Well, for one, it's the commodities market. I mean, do we think about that? No. We're thinking too short term. It, oh, the commodities index uh, market. That's the, that was the cause for those huge gas price, uh, prices in 2008, for example. Mm hmm. So, and so because you don't know that, you're ignorant of that, you want to infringe on indigenous people's land so you can get oil when that's not even the true cause for why gas prices are so high. There's a lot to chew on and a lot to unpack. Mm -hmm. We could spend all fucking day talking mm -hmm. about just how the pursuit of profit as a value has yeah. so negatively impacted everybody. But I think maybe this is a good good time to wrap up. Yeah. Do you have any more? <laughs> do you have any more final thoughts to add, Mr. Martin? Well, I just want everybody out there just look around you whatever look, look around you the news media you consume whatever try to see this value of profit in there and you're going to see this value of profit and you're going to say oh my god this pervades literally everything around me from my own community the local drug dealer hey he's trying to make a, a profit to these huge huge fortune 500 companies who want to make this short-term profit to the detriment of their own companies, this pursuit of profit, let's stop thinking in terms of money, 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 and let's start thinking in terms of, I guess, fulfillment. And let's redefine success, not in terms of money, but in terms of whatever brings us fulfillment. And killing, stealing, slaving, that is the end goal of this pursuit of profit. It's going to lead to killing, stealing, enslaving, bankrupting economies, etc. Because, hey, you may make money in the short term like Jamestown did. But what are the end results here? What happens when there's that inevitable crash? And when there is a crash, look at who prospers during the crash. Mm. And then do some thinking. Absolutely. So I guess my end thought is just be more of a critical thinker here. And learn more. Especially learn more about the finance industry. Learn more about that. Well said. How about you? I think you encapsulated my thoughts perfectly. So... I think it's time to bring this to a close, a good close here. Thank you for joining us on this really wild and informative 
deep dive into the history of Jamestown and taking a critical eye of the pursuit of profit as a value. And next time, we're going to another location in early America. We're going to talk about Plymouth. Plymouth, yep. All right. We didn't land on Plymouth Rock. Plymouth Rock landed on us. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> the great Malik El Shabazz said. All right. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Y'all have a good one. Alrighty. Bye.